All right. Welcome to another edition of the Cue It Up podcast, Cue It Up Network podcast. Uh, Demetrius Gelatis here with Jesse Engel. How's it going, Jesse? Hey, what's up? Not too much. All right. Uh, so today uh, we've got Demetrius and Jesse Engel here. So uh, he's the first time, first time on the Cue It Up Network. Uh, Jesse Engel is a very good pool player and uh, I'm fortunate to have him as a longtime friend. And so uh, we are going to be potting a little bit about uh, a couple things uh, on our docket. So one of them is that, that uh, Josh Burble, uh, those of you may know him from our previous podcast, Josh is going to be sitting out from the time. And uh, he's actually taken a little step away from pool. And so I, I feel that I owe everybody an update. It's been a little while, and this is why. So I wanted to give everyone an update as to what's going on uh, with me and Josh and, and uh, where we're at with pool. And then at the same time, I think that's a perfect segue. I want to let you guys get to know Jesse a little bit. And then I think we're going to have a conversation about, uh, you know, maybe why some of the challenges that face, you know, some of the U.S. players, you know, uh, when people are talking about like, oh, why doesn't Oscar play more tournaments or why doesn't Bergman, every Moscone Cup people kind of start circling through the, you know, top U.S. Fargo rate players and wondering like, why aren't these guys more active? And and we just maybe have a conversation about some of the challenges, some of the things that people do that make it work and some of the things that make it challenging. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of what's on our docket today. But first, um, I've always got to plug my pool training. So uh, for those that don't know if this is your first podcast or not, uh, I do three-day pool boot camps for players that are serious about getting better at pool. And so you know, everybody starts recreationally. Everybody starts just, you know, see what you can do. You get better day after day just because you're learning so much. And then something changes. And maybe you start getting better and it's harder to make forward progress or you've found that you're going to be at, you know, you've been at the same level for a while. Or maybe you're about to put in a lot of work over the next few years and you've got more time and energy and you really want to see what you can do with the game. And, uh, and before you put in a bunch of energy, you want to make sure you're on the right course. So for players like that, um, you might, you might consider working with me. I'm in Minnesota, but people fly to me. So it doesn't, geography doesn't really matter. Uh, you come stay at my house, work with me side by side for three full days uh, of custom one-on-one -on -one instruction. And you can find out more at mnbootcamp.com. Oh my gosh, I messed up my own website, mnpoolbootcamp.com. That's MN is for Minnesota. So Minnesota pool bootcamp. So mnpoolbootcamp.com. Um, you can reach me at info at mnpoolbootcamp.com. And you know, what's funny, Jesse, I was thinking I wanted to introduce some humor because we got some, uh, some somber topics today, but I was thinking about, I was talking to somebody and I was like, you know, um, what's great about the people that come work with me is like a lot of them have heard me on the podcast. And so they know what they're getting into. And they, and so most of the people that come are like a really good fit for me because I'm like, you know, they hear me and then if they like me, they come work with me. And it's, I, you know, it's a really good fit. I, I don't really have personality clashes ever. And I was like, you know, I think it's a good thing that I do these things. You know, people hear me and they get to get, they get to know me and then they, they come work with me and it goes real smooth. And then the thought occurred to me, what if, and I was like, yeah, I think this podcast is really helping my business. And I'm like, what if I was actually like the people, that, there was like dozens and dozens of people that would have come and worked with me. And then they heard me on the podcast and they're like, they were on the verge of like sending the email to me to sign up. And then they're like, 
wait a second. This guy is a rage anyway. And I can't even, I don't know what PG rating we have here, but yeah, you know what I'm saying. I do. Anyway, yeah. it was just a funny thought. So hopefully I'm not driving you guys away. So. All right. So that's my plug for MN Pool Bootcamp. Um, before I get into what's going on with Josh, I wanted to introduce everyone to Jesse. So Jesse, you want me to do your bio? Is that right? Or do you want to? I mean, yeah, you can add or you can say what you want to say. And then if there's anything missing, I can add in. Okay, so we're going to start at the beginning. So it was a cold, rainy October night when a 13-year-old Jesse Engel first walked by the doors of Jimmy's Pro Billiards and looked inside and was captivated by the emerald shine. Of, okay, I don't know. This is, I don't know if that's quite how it went, but... Yeah, well, how old yeah. were you when you started playing? I, I think I was probably somewhere of 10, 10, 11, somewhere in there. Yeah, I had a... I have a couple of family members that play pool. So two cousins and an aunt, they were the ones that actually got me into the game. They had a table in their basement and I believe why it started was she used to drive her oldest son up to Jimmy's actually in the summer to play like these Wednesday night beginner tournaments. And also around that time, they were both like pretty involved in like junior leagues and junior nationals. And there was something where like the age change, like for the brackets they could play in their their teams were about to get split up and they were trying to figure out who they, their third player was going to be for like the, the following season. And then my aunt had this idea that, you know, to kind of have me uh, see if it was something that would be a good fit for me. And then maybe we could hop on a team together. So during that summer, I know uh, my oldest, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me mentioning, but uh, Chad, he's, yeah, he, he used to come up to these weekly uh, beginner tournaments. So I would go and, uh, kind of hop in and, and play them too, just for fun. And I mean, I, I'm somebody that's pretty competitive, you know, by nature. So that was uh, something I wanted to be good at. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a blur now. It's like 15 years ago, 20, I mean, getting close on 20 now. So I might not have all the details exact, but that's pretty much how it started. And then the, the younger cousin is my age. And there was a lot of a uh, lot of weekends during the school year and in the summer where I would go down there and him and I would put in like anywhere from like 12 to 16 hour sessions, just nonstop playing short sets. And that's uh, that's kind of what what bred me to, to be a pool player. Yeah. So. And, and so for for those that are, you know, haven't heard of Jesse Angle, I, I would hope that many of you have. But, uh, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, Fargo rate, he's hovering around 750. Uh, he's he's been you know, the top player in Minnesota for a number of years now. And uh, yeah, he, uh, he's got, he's got me by what he's always had like a 12 to 14 point Fargo gap over me. And he, he mentions that to me every time he kicks out of one of my safeties, it seems to come up a lot, but no, no. Anyway, I just, uh, he, uh, Jesse's had a, a pretty cool career in the sense that he's had, you know, he, he came on the tournament scene. He started playing pro tournaments, you know, right around, I'll, I'll, I'll let him refresh my memory here in a second, but, you know, close to 18 and then uh, had some good wins. He's had some cool high watermarks, including participating on the bonus ball team with uh, Ralph Souquet and Thorsten Holman. And uh, he was actually on the winning team in the bonus ball. And I think he may have ran out the, the winning rack. And then um, he is, he's, you know, dominated in the Midwest on bar tables and he's also uh, had some pretty good success uh, you know, in some national level tournaments, I think he, uh, he won one like a year and a half ago. That was a, like a, what a Florida event with Donnie Mills and Tommy Kennedy and stuff like that. So he can play a little, he can play a little. 
But uh, so you got into the game, you played a lot. So I guess my question, first question I'm going to throw at you here. What do you, you know, a lot of, a lot of young players put in a lot of time. Not a lot of young players have the success you've had. Where do you think you did something that maybe many of the other younger players didn't do? Sure. That's an interesting question. Uh, well, I mean, as you know, like there's a couple of younger players in our area. I mean, I don't that. Well, there are like, you know, uh, you mentioned him on the podcast at Harry or yeah. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've, so I've been reading about like, Harry. like someone like him, I mean, it's very clear that he's dedicated to, to want to improve his game. And the difference between myself and a lot of younger players, like when I was coming up was you, it was pretty clear that they were there more for the social reasons or, you know, parents kind of got them into it for, that reason um I mean in a sense I sort of had a leg up because I was a little bit abnormal as a kid like I didn't really uh you know I didn't really find interest in the same as a kid as well as as a younger version (laughs) of myself yeah that's funny um but you know I I didn't really uh I mean I wasn't super interested in in like all the the social stuff that most kids were my age um, I did play some team sports throughout school and that stuff always bothered me. I, I never liked the idea of having to rely on other people to win or lose. So when, when I sort of stumbled upon pool, I knew that that was kind of my way to go be my little closet narcissist self or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and yeah, I kind of just get out that, that inner competitiveness that I really couldn't get and, you know, get out anywhere else. So I don't know, as far as what I did different, I mean, I guess, I mean, I just, I did, I put in a lot of time and I was always thinking about the game. I remember even in, in the, the school years, like that, that's all I would ever think about was pool. I mean, it, it got in the way of school, it got in the way of uh, my social life and everything else. So I don't know. I mean, that's, it's not really hard to figure out why that ended up in being the success that it did when you get like a borderline addiction to something that's, you know, I mean, not a, not in a bad way, but you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I just put in a bunch of hours and wanted to get good. So that's what happened. Yeah. And I think that um, you came up at an interesting time because it was probably, you know, let's see here. You said 15 years ago. That's probably right. So like 15, 20 years ago. So you were coming up in the age of it was kind of a new age. You know, uh, the, the 80s and 90s players were not as, you know, the, the when, back when U.S. dominated in the, you know, the 80s and 90s things weren't quite as fundamentally sound that the knowledge about the game wasn't quite out there. Uh, now today it's rampant. Where was it when you were up and coming? Like what role were you able to watch the top international players play live online or, were, you know, how much did you learn? Like, or was it all you just learned from playing local players or did you get influenced by the information age? Yeah. I mean, it was a slight mix of both, I guess. Um, I, I know where pool was at, like around here, there was some of those uh, like, what the, the Joe Thomas six arrow? Do you remember those the casino yeah, yeah. tournaments? So there was like a handful of events per year where where there was like master level, you know, or open level uh, on the bar table. Yeah, I remember where, in two thousand nine, I believe you were still playing in the open division in one of those events. I remember that vividly. Uh, <laughs> I'm like now it's awkward. Like I ended up because I was in the masters division. I won that. That was like a tournament I won, and I remember you were in the open division, and I was like. I think. And I was like, why? Yeah, that was like probably like still. So as, as late as 2009, you were still like, quote unquote, an up and comer. And then like that changed real fast. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I remember like 
what what changed was I know I went to one of those tournaments and I won the open tournament. And then I think there was another one like two months later. And I, I don't really know if I fully believed that I was like a master level player at that point. And then I remember I, I like not ran through the tournament, but, you know, pretty well, like ran through a master's level tournament. And at that point, I remember a, play, a player who still plays good, Vince Chambers from, uh, yeah, from what, Thunder Bay. Yeah, yeah Thunder yeah. Bay, a great, great bar table player too. And I remember I, I either, I don't know, I don't want to make up a story here, but I know I beat him in the finals. I don't know if I double dipped him or just kind of ran through him the from the winner's side. But, but I remember once that happened, then I realized like, oh, like I used to look at this guy as being like the toughest guy aside from maybe when you would come up there. And and it seemed like the, the path to victory there wasn't as out of out of line as I thought it would be. So from there, I just remember I, I kind of felt like maybe you know, maybe I can just be the best around here. Yeah. So. And I want to, I want to, there's some questions I have about that, but you know, shout out to Vince Chambers, this guy, it was funny because, well, I, I, I'll just say the last time I played him, you and I, and actually Josh, the three of us were actually at a tournament in Duluth, Minnesota. Mm. And it was some uh, qualifier for one of those Darren Appleton world eight ball things that uh, anyway, uh, I remember it was like a race to nine bar table, eight ball. Was it a race to nine or a race to seven? Race to well, all I maybe okay it was nine and seven, it, or yeah. maybe it was nine and seven, or maybe it was eight. All I, I here's why I remember is because I think I had the guy down like seven to one going to eight. So let's just say it was seven to one going to eight, and I was on my last object ball, and I got like froze on top of a ball, and I missed it because I was tree topped and I just didn't put this ball down. I I want to say I was up like seven to one going to eight, and I was shooting like the hill game, and Vince cleans up that rack. And breaks and runs out the set. And I and I think it was I he he either ran out and broken ran six or he ran out and broken ran seven. It was one of the two. He either ran like seven and out or eight and out on me. And so I was playing pretty good. I was feeling kind of optimistic. And then uh and then that happened. And I was like, woof. So anyway, yeah, yeah he's, he's a tough handsome, player. Man. He's a tough player. Yeah. So anyway, um, let's see. So so then so after you came on the scene. There was one thing that I remember vividly was your first pro tournament is you went to the U S open. Was that in 2009? No, that was 2010. Cause I graduated okay. back when I was in school. Um, yeah. But actually that wasn't the first pro tournament I oh, played okay. in. So before that I did go out to one of the, at the time, the seminal events, I went out to one, I believe it was like, I think it was at racks. I think it's what it was called racks in like West Hempstead, New York. And that was where I just, had like a first experience and I, I mean, I did okay. I, I know I, you know, I didn't do anything super special, but I mean, I beat a, a few of the, the decent players and then, uh, yeah, that was like my first experience. But then, yeah, I think a couple weeks later was when that U S open happened and uh, where are you going to, yeah, I think, I think that's where a lot of people learned your name because you played and you made a pretty good run and they was your first was was that your was it Mike Siegel on the TV table? Did they put you on the TV table against Siegel? No. So what happened is I showed up and I like shout out to the US Open in the old days back when you used to be able to show up and uh, and the, let's just say the field was uh, a little bit softer than it is these days. And I remember I did have like a, a pretty decent first round match where you know like even if I was a little bit nervous about being like my first big. Uh, whatever would be considered international style type of tournament. Um, it it kind of gave a little uh, comfort level there. And then my second match, I actually played John Mora and I beat him like, I don't know if I beat him like 11 to six or 11 to seven. 
And, and I remember when that happened, like, like I knew I was playing good pool at that time, but I, I beat this guy that I'd like seen, you know, tons of stories about and seen that he was like a great player, which I mean, he is, he's an incredible player. But when I, when I beat him, like, I guess I still had that sort of that, I wouldn't call it a level of delusion, but like just where I, I, I didn't quite know enough to like know where I really stood. So the, so right when that happened, I, I, I kind of just felt like, well, I'm, I'm kind of on a free roll from here. Like who cares? Like I'm, I'm probably supposed to lose to a lot of the good players anyways. So like I have nothing to lose here. And then that was where I played the, the third round match. And that's where I drew uh, Earl Strickland. I saw that and, Hill Hill match. Yeah. Yeah. Hill and match. it was, it was funny because like, I felt like I was playing a pretty good set against that guy, but I just remember being like, like pretty I don't know, like kind of like checked out mentally from like what was going on. And I knew I was kind of just in the zone of that thing. And yeah, and I did end pretty fortunately where, you know, I, I was breaking really good because I had a, had a fix on the rack back then when you could, when you could really uh, doctor it up. But, um, but yeah, in the Hill Hill match, I remember he left me like this, I was on the two ball and I was like maybe three inches off the rail. It was one of those shots where the two balls passed the side, but out toward, more towards the center of the table. And you kind of had to do like that, that back cut shot and the natural like tangent line off, it was going to, the cue ball was going to hit into the eight ball and then come back up, up table a little bit. So it was like, you know, it could look like a good shot. And I hit the ball like pretty good. And the ball jawed it like rattled like three times, but I hit it really hard. And then it went across table above the other corner pocket and the reverse spin brought it back over to go in the, uh, the same pocket I was trying it in. And then I, I got pretty fortunate that, you know, I was good on the three from there and I ran out. I remember that. I, I didn't remember the details. I just remember, I remember you had a very testy two ball and that uh, you got up there and, uh, you know, shot at it. And, it, and it, I, all I remember is that it missed and bounced around and went in somewhere. And then you, uh, cool as a cucumber, ran out while Earl was uh, probably reflecting on the nature of the rules of nine ball. <laughs> yeah, no, I think he was handling it pretty well from what I remember. Uh, no. <laughs> Well, Earl, Earl, you know, he's... Uh... Have you played Earl again? Oh, oh okay. Too soon. Okay. Too soon. Well, actually, I'm still up eight to, eight to seven or eight to nine. Uh, uh, but, yeah, no. Um, you know, he's on the Moscone Cup this year. I heard, Jesse yeah, played Earl. When, when I went, when, that was the Aranis when I had James Aranis at the Calcutta. You know, Jesse and I had... Anyway, I went down to that tournament with Jesse, and and uh, he he played Earl and got up eight to six, and I think Earl conceded. Yeah, so, yeah. Anyway, well, so yeah, I just... So I just had to reminisce for a second. For sure, there. yeah. Well, we can hop. So just to finish the U.S. Open things, you're asking about the first big, big yep. tournament there. Yep. So then I I beat him, and and I guess like you know I I wasn't like too into like the like what was actually going on in the pool community at that time. I was just sort of focused on myself, and and I I remembered like all these like you know talks when I was like going to the to the bracket room where they used to have across the hall, and like. I overheard somebody saying like, yeah, like this guy like upset him and like ruined the, the match of the century or the match of the decade or something. And I, I like, I didn't really know what was going on. Cause I, I didn't really look at the brackets. I mean, oh, I'm just yeah, yeah. whatever. And then I find out that like they were doing like these uh, write-ups about Earl and Mike Siegel playing for like the first time since the nineties. And they were already like pre-planning this grudge match for the TV match because nobody thought I had a chance to beat like I, and then like, I remember walking past uh shannon dalton who like he had like lines on the match and stuff and he's like yeah he's like the line was to for you not to get past four and i was like i was just like man like no no respect around here you know like let me just whatever but um but then uh then from there yeah like those were the those were the days when uh when i hadn't really faced like 
defeat and the struggles of traveling yet. Cause then I, I remember I had a good break at the hotel and I had like a four or five hour uh, break in between those matches before I had to play Mike. So I remember I just went back and I just like kind of relaxed. And then when I came back, like at that point, you know, now all of a sudden, like I was getting like some attention and a bunch of people were watching and, and I was like, I had heard of Mike Siegel. I mean, I knew kind of who he was from the past, but I'd never seen him in person. And, uh, and, and that was a, that's a match I'll for sure never forget. Like uh, it was pretty funny. So we, like we start off and we leg and I win the leg and I break and I run and like, he's doing this thing, you know, where he's kind of talking with the audience. I think he has like a, somebody, I don't know if he's dating or married, whatever it was, but he like his partner with him at the time and then some family friends or something. And he was kind of just talking like, yeah, this, whatever, you know, like I'm going to, I'm playing this good. I'm playing real good. And then it, all of a sudden it gets to be like, where I'm up like three, zero, four, zero. And then I start hearing the comments of like, yeah, this kid reminds me of me when I was a young kid. And then, and then by the time I was up like seven or eight to zero, like, it was just like crickets. Like the guy was like, he didn't really have anything to say anymore. And, uh, and I remember like, the, like, this is the, great vivid memory of the shot so when i was up like it was either seven zero or eight to zero i remember the i finally got hooked on a break and i pushed out to a shot where like the only shot you could shoot was like or a sort of jacked up draw kick to like kick the the one ball from the center of the table into the side it was a pretty tough shot but i was just like i felt invincible at the time and you had this huge lead so i pushed out and he kind of does this thing walking on the table and he's like He's like, there's no shot, you know, he's like, whatever. And then uh, he, he passed it back and I just drilled this kick and got perfect and ran out. And then I, I know that I got up uh, 10 to zero and he finally ended up winning the game when, when I was up 10 zero where I got, uh, I, I finally had to play safe, but you know, he, he made a good kick shot and, and ran out. And then I ended up beating him 11 to one. And to this day, that might've been, I mean, that has to be like top three of the, the best, like quote unquote, Aki stats match I've ever played. I don't actually think in the race to 11, I made a single error. Like it was pretty crazy, man. And then, uh, yeah. And then that was where I, I had my first experience after that with um, maybe some disorganization with, with some pool stuff. So then I had to play a uh, Torsten next and, you know, I hadn't even met the guy at this point, but they, they kind of like, were like, you know, making a big deal of this match. And it was supposed to be like this new up and comer versus the seasoned veteran guy. And they, they had a schedule that like the 7 p.m. match on the TV table. So I plan ahead. I, I go nap, you know, do my thing, rest, and then I get a dinner. And I show up and, you know, those TV table matches, sometimes they take a little bit longer. So we're already running behind like 20 to 30 minutes. And then uh, then they, you know, we know we're wait on deck. So we, we go up, we start hitting balls. And then like 15 minutes into, you know, like they're about to get ready to start, they come up and they're like, actually, you know what? Like, because it's so close to the next round, we have like a, a match that we, we can't not have on the, the AccuStats thing. So they, they took us off the TV table and like kind of like rattled me a little bit. I was like, well, I don't understand. Like we just planned for this. Like, you know, this was kind of, I don't know, irritating me at the time. And then they, uh, they ended up putting our match on one of the tables that was being used as like a practice table. It was way back in the corner. And to this day, like I, I'm a little, I'm, I'm pretty upset about how this happened because I felt like I was in a zone where, that might've been a year where I could have made a really deep run, especially having the, you know, the racking rules uh, definitely on my side that, that time, but they put us back in this thing. And I, and I remember the whole match for like two hours, there was like maybe four people back there watching. 
and not that it has to be a big, you know, big show, but I mean, I just came from like upsetting this world champion where, you know, hundreds of people were watching. And then I was like in the main stage while these people were going and, you know, it is what it is. So, so he ended up getting me like 11 to eight and, and that was, uh, that was it for the winner side there. But, and then uh, who did you play on the B side? Then, uh, yeah. So then I ended up losing a Hill Hill to Chris Melling. That was like his first year over playing the U S open. And uh, that was a pretty tough one to lose too. the way that I lost in the, in the Hill Hill match. I, I mean, not that he would remember, but I, I broke on the Hill and, and made two balls. And uh, I had a, like the one ball was like a, a diamond away from the corner. And I was about to have about a 45 degree cut, you know, three feet away from the, the ball, very easy. And then the, the three, nine combo was down at the end of the table. So like, as long as I get on the one, uh, one ball, I'm going to be, it was almost a dead combo, like about two inches away. And at the very last second, the five ball rolls up and freeze to the back of the, the cue ball. And it was a, one of those weird spots where you, because of where it's frozen, you can't push out down table. So I can only like push out the same side of the table unless I wanted to go like three or four rails and, and risk uh, hooking myself. And could you have broken open them three, nine? No, no, no. The I was five, frozen. Yeah. The five, five was in okay. the worst spot. Like gotcha. where it landed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. So I just, I made this, you know, very mature and <laughs> short decision after about 10 seconds that I was just going to do the, uh, the shot that I love, which is just to, to jack up and it roll, you know, slow roll it in. And I hit the ball perfect and I make it. Well then the cue ball like ticks off like the seven or eight ball that was, you know, like a diamond and a half above the, the one ball there. Okay. So it ticks off it and go figure it. The cue ball rolls now and freezes on the other side of the five ball. So, <laughs> so it was like, it was just the worst result that I could possibly get. And it put me in a spot where now I had to basically shoot the same shot on the two ball, but it was a different type, but I, I couldn't have shot it more than like a pocket speed shot. And then it was going to be, now I was going to leave myself on the other side of the table away from the, the three nine combo if I made it. But I ended up shooting it, and and I got got it in there, and then I was like, the cue ball was like close to the end rail, and, and now the three nines way down at the other end of the table, dead if you're like down at that end of the table. But now when you got like a forty five degree back cut at three inches, you're like, well, what are you gonna do, right? So I ended up shooting it, and it and it just rattled out, and then uh, he from there he made a pretty good out because the cue ball came, you know, back where it was like real tough shot on the three ball, and uh, he, and he made you know not a surprise with his shot making ability but he made a great out and that was the end of the tournament for me so tough it's tough, long story man. but so, so that was my... a couple of things first of all you know you've mentioned a couple of things about the rack and i just wanted to kind of get some zoom in on this because there's a it's a very uh polarizing topic but when you said something you made the you used the word doctor the rack and so already there's probably 20 percent of the people listening that already have you pegged as like a horrible human being so i just want to zoom in when you talk, tell me what you mean about doctor now my understanding okay let's just say Scenario one, player racks the balls and then inspects the rack to look for certain tracks of tight balls, reads the rack. Maybe if it's rack your own, if you don't like your rack, you re-rack until you're satisfied that you have a good lay of balls that you can predictably control. That would be reading the rack and racking persistently to get a rack that you like, that you read correctly. Scenario two would be deliberately creating gaps to increase the likelihood of certain outcomes. Are you trying to gap the rack or are you just trying to read the rack? Sure, sure. So the way I always used to rack was uh, when it was before the template stuff was I would figure out where the one ball is kind of going to rock back, of course. And then I would just sort of, I have a way to kind of push it while I'm rolling the back five balls of the diamond and then letting that one ball sort of rock back maybe a few cent or a few uh, millimeters just to kind of 
like sit, you know, let the balls rest as they may. Yeah. And then from there, like, that's what I would read it as. Yeah. 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 So that's what I thought. Yeah. So yeah. So doctor's probably a bad way to, but, but you were, I, I definitely had a huge fix at that time on the, I mean, aside from guys like Corey and maybe a few other guys who had really put time into it. I mean, I don't think there was that many guys in that tournament that, that could have read the rack better than myself at that point. Yes. I and, mean, uh, well, I can attest because I remember, and you know, I've, I've played the U S open a few years, but I believe that was the year that you showed me how to read the rack. And you worked with me before the tournament on how to break the balls and how to read that rack. And I believe that that was a break for the box here, uh, if I remember right. And you were showing me how to break the balls and how to make the wing ball and how to read, if, you know, how to read the gaps or if there's gaps and if there's not gaps. Anyway, you showed me. And then now I, I, I'm not interested in, like, I didn't have any kind of, you know, tournament that I'm going to, like, tell a story about but i will say that i've never ran so many racks off the break as i did after you showed me how to break and you know read the rack and break the ball so yeah yep yeah i mean back around that time that was pretty much everything you know before 10 ball came around like real seriously and, and became the the main game i mean that was yeah that was just a huge edge man yeah so so, so my, my other question i just wanted to do that for your own uh reputational defense I oh yeah well, that, but, well quick side note on that yeah. too like I mean that of course that's like a, a huge debate that's gone on in pool, but it it's always struck me as a little bit ridiculous because it's like racking is a skill in itself, and I know why people don't want that to be a part of the game, but at the same point, like if those same people say that like having the exact same rack every time with like a magic rack is somehow great for the game, like for me that that's kind of boring. I mean I, it's fine like if everybody gets to make the wing ball but i mean you've seen it in action like and like the couple of years where we went to the bar table championships especially i mean there was a time where i had that nine ball break dialed in so good that like it was guaranteed i'd get a shot on like almost every break and have basically the same pattern and there's people that are better than, than i am but that to me that ruins the game and and not having the skill set to know like how the you know how the balls are going to react by the way that they're they're racked is I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know why that's like viewed as scummy in a sense. I mean, to me, it would be more scummy to have like people racking for each other and intentionally leaving gaps to, to make sure that they can't make a ball. And, you know, and so, so where it gets, and I, I'm not going to go down this because this is, we could, we yeah. could have a podcast on racking rules and breaking rules. But what I will say is where, where it gets touchy is where there's, there's what rules are enforced. And then, there, so there's like the, there's like the actual, referee enforced rules and then there's the social rules and then there's the idealistic rules and the and the social norms so it's like you have the rules like what referees allow you to do and not do and those are the rules and then there's a but there's another set of rules where people are like well how ought this be and how ought players do it and how how should the rules be and what should the social norms be and it should just be that we rack and we don't inspect and we break hard or something like people have their own ideas of how it should be but the problem is, is that if you have a group of competitive pool players, many of whom are learning to rack and read the rack and break and control certain balls. And then, you you know, if you had a bunch of purists out there that are just like, well, I just want to hit them hard and play from there. Like those players, you're not going to see those players. And so it's like, it's just anyway, it's, it's a really, it's really unfair to a competitive player to ask them not to defend themselves against other people that are, you know, 
developing and using those skills that are within the legal rules. You know, they're not breaking rules. Otherwise the referee would be involved. Anyway, yeah, that's, that's, as, that's honestly as far as I want to go into that, because my next question for you, how, okay. How did you, did you ever, like, it doesn't seem like you were inhibited in your performance playing top reputable pro players, you know, I mean, getting, you know, you, I mean, beating Mike and Earl, almost getting there with, uh, you know, beating John uh, Mora, almost getting there with uh, Melling and, uh, and Thorsten, you know, what were you 18 at the time? Yeah. So, so at, at any point, so, so I've had it happen where I've played top players where I've let off or played poorly and, and given away sets because somewhere deep in my mind, I just didn't feel like I was supposed to be beating those guys. Now I've also not, I've done, I haven't always done that, but I've certainly had that happen to me where I've given away sets or like I've, like somehow my subconscious capped my performance at a level that was not, you know, like not, it's like if we're in a race, if I'm playing a top player and it's a race, it's like my subconscious capped me from going fast enough to win because I just didn't feel like I was supposed to. Uh, it didn't seem like that was happening to you in that tournament. So has that ever happened to you or do you, how, how or does that, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Like, did it, how did it not affect you in that tournament? Yeah. Well, again, I mean, it, it didn't really affect me at that time because, I didn't have any real expectation from pool or what I wanted to do with it. I just knew that I wanted to, you know, go try out these professional tournaments. I mean, I'd been playing pool for a while and kind of beating everybody around the, you know, local and I guess even regional area. I know. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. It's just, it, it's just one of those things where like, you don't, there's like nothing that's like, uh, I, I mean, I wasn't jaded in any sense. I didn't have any, like, I didn't, I mean, I just, so you're just naive and ignorant, exactly. Innocent, yeah, just, you're innocent and idealistic and just let's see what happens. Yeah. yeah and, and I remember, I mean, I, I know that I went there with the idea of like, I have no clue what the draw is going to be, but like, it's going to take a decent player to beat me, of course. And, uh, and I just wanted to see like, if I could snap off some good players. And then when that happened, like, it just kind of came to fruition. I was like, well, I mean, this is kind of cool. And then, uh, you know, from like, you just feel like you're on a, free roll and you're kind of invincible because you, you have nothing to lose by the time I played uh you know once I played Earl and kind of got through that one that was that was a pretty tough thing for me like you know nerves wise and I mean I did you know like contain them pretty well I thought for like having no experience in that uh you know on that stage but but after getting through that that's kind of what just calmed me down I was like all right well now it's like a bunch of good players so I mean, it is what it is. Like, let's just see what I can do. And if I fail, no, I mean, nobody's expecting me to win another match anyway. So, yeah. yeah. So that, that made it really easy, but yes, that has happened since then. Um, you know, after I became, I guess at that point, sort of an established player that was traveling around and, and doing some of the professional level tournaments. I mean, although I wasn't near the top by any means, like when you, there's almost like an expectation that you put on yourself that you're supposed to, you know, beat all the players that are like lesser than you of like rating and, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's a yeah, tricky, you want to beat everyone under you and then, and then upset as many other people. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's a tricky, you know, game to get into as well, because then you, I mean, then when you do lose to players who maybe aren't supposed to beat you uh, a large percent of the time, or when you, I don't know, it's, it's just a tricky thing, but, but that kind of, that kind of changed pool for me too, when it became, traveling around more and playing a lot more of those like and, and so before we get it what what would you what advice would you have to somebody because i know that this is a universal thing that players deal with yeah what advice like if you could drop some advice on somebody 
who's physically playing good enough to break through to the next level, but maybe just doesn't somewhere deep inside, doesn't believe it. And so they, they stall out and they don't necessarily take advantage of opportunities. And then, and then the more often that happens, then the, then the, the bigger that hill gets to climb and the more they feel like, you know, I mean, it's just a weird cycle. How, how much does somebody go about troubleshooting that? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, that's tricky too. Yeah, I think it's going to vary. Totally. I would say not use any of those. Um, not that I have, but you know, I, I think what I would say to that is, you know, I, I mean, I'm a pretty analytical person as well. So I would say before you're going to like try to figure out a solution, I mean, you really have to have a good grasp on what you're trying to get out of getting to that level. You know, like if you just like the idea that you could be a player that can beat good players and, and, you know, maybe take a set off the top, you know, 20 guys in the, the country or, or in the world at some point, then that's great. But like not having a, a set goal in mind, I think it's going to hinder you quite a bit. Um, from personal experience, I think I know this. Uh, but you also have to have a level of like carelessness too, because with without that, I mean, you can, you see it with the players that come up now, like the, the filler, you know, mm. when, he, when he came through, like, I don't think it's that he doesn't care. It's just that he has the right mix of like, carelessness how he plays and then like lack of fear of of the result you know like he's he's definitely not playing not to lose he's just playing to win all the time and he does i mean unless there's something going on underneath that skin that we don't see like he it doesn't really seem to phase like what happens or what roles happen you know so so i'm going to tell you this is something i've uh i didn't have on the docket but it fits in really nicely i don't want to run this by you i don't think i've ever talked to you about this i have thought about Okay, I've boiled it down to four categories of what, just to say it quite simply, what do wins mean and what do losses mean? Do they mean everything? Do they mean nothing? And so I, I'm going to boil it down and I'm going to talk about my thoughts on this real quick and I want to see what your response is. So the first one is wins mean everything, losses mean everything. Like when you win, it's the best thing ever. And when you lose, it's the worst thing ever. That's category one. Category two is wins mean nothing, losses mean everything. Category three is wins mean nothing, losses mean nothing. And category four is losses mean nothing, wins mean everything. And so here's my thoughts on this real quick, is that I think that when players are in a spot where if they win, it would be like the most amazing Thing ever like I've proven this I've accomplished this this is the greatest thing ever but if I lose then I've dogged it and I've blown it and I'm the worst and it's horrible and I'll never get there if it basically if it's heaven and hell if wins mean everything and losses mean everything I feel that it creates too much pressure and that it's just too much and that the and that the, you know that zap of the, the horror of losing and uh, the how polarized and how distant they are from each other anyway I think it's too much it's overwhelming too emotional. So then I look at the, I look at wins mean nothing, losses mean everything. And this has to do with expectation and an ego where players get to a point where they expect themselves to make a ball. They, they expect themselves to run the table. They expect themselves to win. So anytime they make a shot, they don't celebrate anything because they feel like, well, I'm supposed to do that. And then anytime they ever make a mistake though, 
then they punish themselves and get really upset. And so they do this from a sense of trying to motivate themselves and having, they think that if they have really, really, really high standards, then they're going to end up better than if they don't have high standards because A, their standards are high and B, they're trying to motivate themselves by, by punishing themselves to get there. So that I think a lot of people listening right now fit into this. I think a lot of people fit into the wins mean everything, losses mean everything. And I think that's overwhelming emotionally. I think a lot of people fit into wins mean nothing, losses mean everything, where they're constantly Hor- you know, horrified that things when things go bad and they're constantly punishing and there's nothing to celebrate because anytime anything good ever happens, they, they kind of just, they don't even enjoy it because they're too focused on any mistakes they make. The third camp, so then people try to get away from that. They try to let go of this whole, win, you know, losses mean everything because it's too much for them. So then they try to get, let go of that, but then they don't know how. So they let go and they go to the third phase, which is losses mean nothing, wins mean nothing where they literally just like, I'm just going to not care. I'm just going to hit balls. I don't even really take this game that seriously. And I'm just not going to attach too much importance to it. But these people don't have the right level of desire and the right level of fire and fight. And so that leads to the fourth category, which is losses mean nothing. Wins mean everything. Like when I lose, no big deal. doesn't matter. It doesn't even register. It doesn't even, it does nothing. It doesn't even count. It's almost like if um, if I told you we were going to play sets of pool and every time you win, I'll pay you a thousand. And every time I win, we just rack them up and play again. You, nothing. It's like, or we just play a rack, every every rack like that. Like I'll, every time you beat me a rack, I pay you a thousand. Every time I win a rack, nothing. We just re-rack and play another game. Like if that was the way it was and we were just going to play all day, you wouldn't really care if you lost a rack because you'd be like, well, that doesn't matter because I know I'm going to win a lot of racks and I'm too excited about the racks I'm winning to care about the racks I'm losing. And I feel like the optimal mindset is to feel that way, where you feel like I nothing ever bad can happen to me because only good things can happen. And I know that the losses are just a temporary delay of the good things that are going to happen at some point. And I'm just excited about all the good things happening and all the good shots I make and all the good runouts I make and all the wins I have. And when I lose, it's just like, eh, didn't want to do it that way. Learn from it what I can so I could try to get my next win. And you're just too excited about all the good things that are happening. And incidentally, I think people start with that mindset as a beginner where they don't expect to make anything. And every time a ball goes in, they get excited that something bounced off the rail and went into that pocket like they meant to. And it's just every time anything good happens, they get excited and they have zero expectations. And I think it's a, it's a negative mindset that's developed for a lot of reasons where people start, start assigning too much meaning to losses. And I think anyway, I think that the optimal mindset Losses mean nothing, wins mean everything. That gives you the right level of fire and enthusiasm and fight and celebration and fun without the fear and the expectation and all that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, well, there's kind of a couple things there. So first on your four categories, I do recall actually you bringing that up one time when we were driving to a tournament. Okay, I never remember. But maybe it was either that or just an idea that was very similar. But yeah, I mean... It's probably true, man. I think we all go through all stages of that, really, like yeah. depending on like how our career progresses. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, you know, but but then, uh, yeah, like how you were just talking about people are getting really excited, balls bouncing off everywhere. So uh, my opinion is that, yes, like in theory, like you would not want to have to attach so much to the to the results, so much meaning to the results. And like, if you could be a robot and, and make, you know, make yourself just never care about win or lose, then of course that would be like 
the perfect player, right? Well, I, like, I was saying that I, I what's wrong with caring when you win, though? I'm not saying a robot, but I, I okay, keep okay, going. yeah, going. yeah, okay. So keep going. There's nothing wrong with just caring when you win either, but like, but my point is like, ideally, you would if you would probably just choose like the, the even keel consistency where none of it really matters over like the roller coaster through your three to four years of your career. Like, cause that's what drags a lot of people down. At least mm-hmm. I, if I could control that, I would just make it where it never changed. So I could just build on a solid foundation, but the, that's a, uh, I mean, a lot of that does have to, I don't want to, I'm not a big person of like assigning things to luck, but there is some things that have to kind of be very favorable for that, that to go on like a good trajectory, which is, one, like in your stage where your learning curve is extremely high and you're just constantly soaking up information and, and climbing the ladder of players, you have to like, you also have to have the right amount of available competition to continue for, for you to make strides up that ladder, right? And then as you get higher, when your learning curve gets lower, like as you know, because you've reached pretty much the highest level you can reach in pool. I mean, aside from being a full-time world champion, like you're about the next best thing, right? Thank you. Like, yeah. well, I mean, anybody that's like around our ratings, like mid 700s, I mean, you, sure, we're not, uh, yeah. we're not contenders for Moscone Cup from, at this know, point. Yeah, you but... know, from that 750, 760 down to like the 737 range. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, down there, I mean. All right. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, like, you know, like that's basically the next like semi pro level, you know, it's all kind of in the range. And, and not, not to say that if, the opportunities were different. You know, again, I'm not trying to make this into some sort of victim story for anybody, but right. that that does play a huge part because you know, had you maybe had the exact same opportunities that I did, like your Fargo rate might be at this point 750 to 770, and just based on like how dedicated of a person you are, but you came up in a different time of pool. So and- I've told people, and this is one of the reasons when I plug my boot camp, I'm like. I maintain that like I had a whole thing on the formula for improvement where it's like has something to do with the amount of work you put in, but it's also about the quality of the work you put in. And a big part of it is the level of competition you play against. And I don't really believe that people can get that much better than their competition. Um, So if you want to get, if you're, if you're a 600 Fargo rate and you want to get 700, uh, there's just, if you're playing, if the best players you're playing against are 620 to 640, I think you might get 650. <laughs> you might get 660. You might get to where you're beating those guys, but it's going to be hard to get levels above them if you're not playing guys that are levels above them. I just, it's really, really, really hard. And so, and so one of the reasons I, I plug my boot camps is because I'm a good player and I can help a lot of people because if they spend three days side by side learning my mannerisms, learning my approach on certain thought by thought processes, all these things, it's, it's absolutely, I, I, I view the game differently. I play the game differently than people that are not the same level as me. And they can pick up a lot, even with, even the stuff, like half the stuff they learn is stuff that's like taught cognitively, half the stuff they learn, they don't even know they learn. They just see it change in their game or I see it change their game. But the level of competition is the other half. And I tell them when you go home, what's your tournament? Like a part of our boot camp is like, you got to tell me about your tournament calendar. Like, what do you got for sparring matches, for, for tournament matches? Like how many, how many players that are at the level, you know, that you want to get to, are you going to be playing over the next six to 12 months? And if the answer is none, then do we need to talk about that? You know? So anyway, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So then I guess just to tell that little point is, um, you know, if you look at a difference, like, 
when I mean Shane like was destined to be what he is probably regardless but one thing that I would say is like he did come up at a really really good time with pool where there was a lot of changes in like the technology and the, and the table conditions yeah. to a point where he was so hungry and traveling around and playing every tournament gambling doing all these things that there was like looking back you can see how many leaks were in like the best players of the 90s and, and him coming up as like the best player of the next age it allowed him to just dominate to the point where i I mean, I, I would love to be inside of his mind in mm-hmm. three years after he realized that he was the greatest. Because to, once you reach that level, then, I mean, you, you do feel invincible, you know? Well, and I want to talk about this. I don't want to, man, this is, a, I, I've talked about it before. I really want to put an asterisk. I think Shane was like the greatest of all time uh, for, for 10, 15 years. But what, one thing you got to realize is that you mentioned technology and just the right timing. Like, Pool had gone from gold crowns to diamonds and from nine ball to 10 ball. And Shane dominated once it was big table or once it was 10 ball on diamonds. Like that. And so I want to, when you say he's like, because when you talk about the players of the 90s and the leaks in their game, uh, had he been playing Johnny Archer and Efren and Earl gold crown nine ball, I don't know that he would have dominated. Like, even if you could take Shane from 2007 and stick him in the 90s, I don't know that he would have dominated against the players from the nineties on gold crowns playing nine ball. I think a big, a big part of it anyway, was that, you know, everybody else switched from gold crowns to diamonds and switched from nine ball to 10 ball. And Shane was like the first, you know, top level player that kind of cut his teeth on those games. And so his, he wasn't, he wasn't like a 35 year old established pro switching games. He was a hungry 21 year old learning and mastering that game so that when he put that game together in a way that nobody else had to him, it was like, well, this is the game we play. And this is the, this is the normal. It wasn't like, Oh, we're playing on this weird table. We're playing this weird game. It's like, this is just the game he grew up with. Anyway, I think that was a factor in why he was so dominant. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. The, well, yeah, of course. But when it switched to 10 ball, he very clearly had the, the most dominant break. And that's uh, it, it's like, if you're if you're playing a game where everybody else is basically forced to push after the break and you're getting shots 60% of the time, it's hard to not be, you know, the dominant player there, yeah. which is he he earned it, he put in the time and that worked and nobody else could figure out quite what he was doing. I mean, and do it on a consistent level that he was. So, but that, but that I helped, wanna, you know. I want to get back so cuz what we were talking about I'm going to go back to subjects because we were talking about this whole wins and losses meaning stuff. Uh, and you talked about basically being even keel is probably going to be adv- advantageous compared to being roller coaster wins mean everything losses mean everything. The reason I talk about losses being nothing wins mean everything is because when I, when you brought up filler and his mindset, you're right. He is. And Cause ultimately this was all about talking about being careless at the table. This is where I brought all that up was you're answering the question. How do you overcome you know, breakthroughs. And, you know, the first thing you said was you got to have goals. Okay. You got to be driven and, you know, you've got to need it and want it and and have to do it. And then the second thing you said was you got to be a little careless. And I talked about this whole winning and losing and what does it mean thing? Because when I look at filler, he doesn't look like a guy where he's even keel and losses and wins mean nothing. It looks like a guy, but to me, it looks like he doesn't like to lose, but his not liking to lose it's like, it seems like on an emotional scale, on a one to 10, it seems like wins are like a 10 for him and losses are like, maybe not a zero, but like just enough to like, 
motivate him to practice and look forward to the next one. It doesn't look like he really registers the losses as hard as he registers the wins. And so when I look at guys like, you know, and, and there are some even keel guys too, you know, I suppose Ralph and who are some of the, you know, and who are some of the even keel guys that don't really get excited when they win a major, you know, Gosh. Shane at this point, I don't really see Shane jumping up and down anymore, but, yeah. I, but I mean, so I guess there's, I guess those are, I guess that would be it. I mean, maybe there's maybe the guys, you know, don't get that. Ex- I mean, if Carlo they Beato, I was watching Carlo when he won, he got pretty pumped. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But, but you're right. I mean, they seem to be pretty chill. Aranis, I, yeah. I don't think yeah. you're right. But anyway, what I would say is whether, whether it's wins mean everything, losses mean nothing or wins mean a lot and losses mean nothing like I, I, or losses don't mean much. I think that, I think that the losses can't be too emotional. Because I think that if you're going to be playing in competitive pool against international champions, you're going to take your losses, right? So, like, it just can't – it's just – you can't hold that – you can't be too intimidated by taking a loss or something. Yeah, well, especially now because, I mean, I don't know if this is exactly how you view pool, but, you know, like, back when I was saying how there was uh, – there, there used to be so many more leaks in, like, even the top guys' games. Like, players who are playing really well and – just had a solid all-around game like did quite well but nowadays like it's it's gotten so advanced where it, it, at least it appears like if you're not an ultra aggressive player you just have like no prayer you know i mean not to do the sidetrack for like poker but it's a it is a great analogy where like back in the day like you could just play the the top you know hand range yeah fit and, and you would be style, yeah. pretty profitable whereas nowadays like as you i mean Again, I don't know how many people would listen to this club, but it's like, it's just, it's a completely different game. Like that doesn't work anymore. You get chewed up, you know? And it's the same thing with pool where you used to be able to just run deep in tournaments and beat most of the players basically on shot choice alone. Yeah, like game management. Yeah, just, yeah. It's, it was, it, I mean, not that it was easy, but it's like, it was pretty consistent. Well, I've, And, and yeah. nowadays, like my experience going out to professional tournaments in the last five to six years, I mean, you've been on most of them, like, <laughs> I mean, you know which one I'm going to bring up. Like we went to North Carolina. I mean, yeah. I think I lost two sets in four uh, four innings. You know, I mean, I, I it's like yeah. Well, I told I, I told my U.S. Open story. I'm sure I told you I played that uh, Conrad just for sure, whatever for you know, and he beat me in like three innings at a race to eleven. He beat me eleven to one. He like ran four racks. I, he scratched on the break. I ran out and played a safety on the next break. I broke played a good safety mm-hmm. and I'm like I, I literally told myself like when I'm down four nothing to this guy I'm one inning and I, I get ball in hand with a tough table I literally told myself I am going to make my presence felt and I ran this table broke played a really good safety and I'm like that's right I'm it's not one-sided here and he jumps this ball in from length of the table and runs six racks to up 10 to one and uh and then he finally misses on 10 to one and he hooks me and gets a shot runs out 11 one in three innings and I'm sitting there and uh, yeah, I just, anyway, so it's like, and that's partly the bathroom break rules of this year. But, but the, anyway, the point is, is that that's, I wasn't the only one that happened to like, this is, it's tough. That's, you're going to. Yeah. yeah. And it's just getting, I mean, that's the way it's going. So we're gonna, that, let's, let's pause that point. Cause I think that when we come into talking about, you know, our topic about Josh and me and you and pool, I think, can we just tie that into that in a minute? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so then, so then, in terms of like advice for, I just wanted to follow up on the goal. You said you got to have a goal and be driven. What did you mean by that? So, you, there, there's got to be like a, a real reason at the end of it why you're playing. Like, I, I don't think it can be super vague of, 
you know, I mean, everybody has the dream, right? If you're American, you're like, my goal is I one day I want to grow up and play in the Moscone Cup or like I want to win a, a, a major, right? Like, awesome. Like, everybody has that tentative goal, but like the Moscone Cup is probably a little bit more controllable than it would be in America than it would be to, to win the U.S. Open at this point, you know? Like, yeah. if you're one of the top players and you have like, you know, a mid or a median like 700 Fargo rate, you're probably in contention somehow if you have a decent year, you know, like you're, you're at least going to be talked about, but what I mean for like a real goal is like, where do you want, like, where do you want to be with pool in your life? Like in a three-year plan, like you can't just go in with the idea that you're just going to do the best you can keep practicing and see where it takes you. I mean, that might, might work for somebody, but I just don't think it's holding yourself to be, uh, you, you got to like be a little bit more accountable than that. Otherwise, you just get into this lull of like wins, losses, sort of going through the motions. And I don't, I mean, maybe some people can make that work, but I, I just don't see it like being a formula for success. No, I look at a, that's good, man. Because I was I, gonna say, I look at a player like Tyler Steyer, right? Like he's very, very dedicated, you know, like he, I don't know if he has a, had a set goal of where he wanted to be, but something like kept him like waking up and, and playing X amount of hours a day and just like really grinding to see what he could do. And that's whatever you have to do to like make your make yourself do that. That's what you have to do. And I, without having any sense of like any kind of goal, then I just don't think that's possible. That's good. So. That's good. All right. Um, let's see here. A lot going on. So okay, cool. So I think. Uh, and then the other thing. I mean, I I think we're pretty well to the point. The only other thing I wanted to mention that uh, that you did is after the U.S. Open, you ran the roads for two three years not full-time on the road, but like you, you kind of lived in different parts of the country and went to a lot of pro tournaments for how many years was it that you were kind of full-time trying, trying pro tournaments? Yeah. I mean, I think it was like two and a half, maybe three, we could call it. But okay. I think that even that year that I played the, that U S open, like I was still working part-time until probably a, a week before that U S open. And then I realized um, not really something I wanted to do because I think I went off to a, you know, at that time I was just working like a basic job that like a starter job. And I know I won some casino tournament for like, it was like $1,400. And I was so like, your job? And I, well, no, I just, I thought about it. And I was <laughs> like, like 18 years old. You I was like, bucks. You're like ah, because I remember, oh, cool. I, well, I remember I went in and asked him and I, and at that time it was scheduled where like for my position, I, you know, we were kind of required to do every other weekend. And eventually it came up where, I, I went and asked my manager, I was like, hey, I was like, there's this pool tournament I want to go to in October. And, uh, you know, it'd be kind of a big deal, but I would need both weekends off. Like, do you think that there's something we could do? And then uh, I remember hearing back later in my shift, she's like, yeah, we probably just can't do it because unless you could find somebody to fill for you and nobody would ever like wanted to do double weekends because nobody wants to lose other weekends. So then I came in the next day. I was like, yeah, this really isn't working out for me. So I got to put in the two week notice, you know? So, I mean. I don't know. It was That's kind of funny. funny but. So, and when you were playing, uh, you you uh, used to, did you run the roads with like Deshane? Weren't you like, well, no, how did that work? Or who were, who were some of your road partners that you were traveling with? I never really had road partners. I mean, like Dustin from here, you know him. I, I don't even know if he still plays much pool at all, but we went to some tournaments. I mean, I, I know I went to some with you. Um, okay. So I'm you trying just, to, yeah, it was just like, I, I know, actually, you know what? Uh, Bo Ronigan was still living here. So him and I traveled to a few tournaments we went to more like the regional stuff together, like weekend kind of stuff. And then, uh, yeah, then he eventually moved away. And, and, and then I think at that point I was just kind of like doing my own thing. 
I knew people, so I'd travel and, you know, meet up with people okay. and, and kind of stay with. But yeah, I did. I think I spent like probably a month and a half with Deshane, and that, that was a pretty good experience. That was fun. That's cool. He's a he's a pretty cool guy. So now I want to talk about Josh for a minute and talk about why Josh is down on this podcast. Okay, so we're and we're all friends. Me and Josh and Jesse, you know, we're we long history. Um and Josh gave me permission to talk about this, so it's all good. Basically, I think that as I thought about it, Jesse, I I have this idea, and I mentioned it on a podcast a few weeks ago, that pool at the high at the highest levels, and maybe at all levels, it's a game of it's a game of you know. I, I have my motto for my if you go to my website. Once again, I'm at poolbootcamp.com. <laughs> the first thing I say is input equals output. Like that's kind of my motto is input equals output. And if you want to get more out, you got to put more in. And it, and it could be, you know, not necessarily more of what you're already doing. Like I said, it could be more effective. It could be, you know, expanding your horizons as far as your competition. It could be getting more effective at, the, you know, how you're targeting your game and how you're improving your game. But anyway, it's input equals output. And, and I've seen this, more and more, I've come to believe this in a way that I think people might nod along, but I don't think people believe it to the level I believe it, where there's a there's a lot of people that just feel like there's some people that are gifted and other people that aren't, and some people are just like winners and other people are just average, and some people are exceptional and other people are just not exceptional. And it's funny, Jesse, because every exceptional person I've ever seen has gone all in on pool for many years and played internationally full time and run and hung out with like, you know, spend, you know, they say you're, you're, they say that you're going to be like your five closest friends. Right. And so like, you know, if the whole thing, if you want to be wealthy, it's like, well, if you surround yourself and hang out with billionaires, you know, if you're, if your five closest friends are all, you know, billionaires, you're probably going to become wealthy just because you're going to pick up their mindsets and their habits and their outlooks and all this stuff. And if you're, you know, if the five closest friends are all athletes and training and working out and running marathons, you're probably going to get in good shape, you know, and it's just one of those things. And it's like when, when people are all in on pool, then they are hanging out their five closest friends or, you know, they're, they're hanging out with champion pool players and they're running into the roads and they're talking about shots and setting things up and practicing against each other. And it's not only do they get to learn from each other on the table and, you know, physically, mentally, but like they just. They just, and then they just become that because it's like, they just come to believe that like, this is who I am. And this is what I do is I'm one of us, you know? And so anyway, I feel like, so, so it used to be that I would look at pool that way. And I'd be like, I wonder if I have what it takes, or I wonder if that person has what it takes, or I wonder if that person could get there. And now I kind of come to believe that everybody can get there if they pay the price. And so, for example, Anybody listening to this podcast, right? If they like, let's just pretend that they quit that they quit their jobs and that they went all they did in their life was play pool and and not just play pool, but like played national level tournaments and hung out with pro players and buddied up with you know the top U.S. players or the top international players and sparred with them and practiced with them and played with them and and roomed with them and traveled with them. They may not be a Josh Filler, but like anybody that's like, you know. I would say like any, like take a player who's like 600 far. And if they ran the roads for five years and played every major 
at the end of that, they're going to be like 750 or so. You know what I mean? It's like, probably, you know what I mean? Maybe yeah. not, maybe not seven, maybe 737. <laughs> but like, the point is <laughs> probably close to 700. <laughs> you know what I mean though? But it's like, I've yeah. seen it. I have seen it too many times. I've seen it too many times where it's like, it's not about does this person have what it takes in terms of, it's not anything internal. It's about, do they have what it takes in terms of budget and investment of energy and resources? And so where, where this is relevant to Josh is that, you know, he's at the level, you know, where he would like to get better and, and play better and have wins and, and, and do things beyond what he's done in the past. So it's like, but then the problem is the resources that he has to put into the game, they're not enough to get what he wants to get out of the game. So I talked about the pool store. It's like a pool store where you go into this pool store and you see, hmm, there's the Shane Van Boning break. And oh, look at that. There's a 200 ball straight pool run. And oh, look at that. There's a, you know, finals at a, you know, major. And oh, look at that. There's a, you know, there's a seven, you know, 760 Fargo rating or, you know, all these shiny things in this pool store that you, that somebody might want. And then you look at the price takes and it's like, ooh, I see how much time that takes. I see how much travel that takes. I see how much energy and mental resources in, in terms of like budget of my pie chart of my life that takes. I don't have that much to spend. Okay, well, what do I have to spend? And what can I get for what I have to spend? And it's like, well, I'm in the wrong store. I can't be looking at the elite pool store. And I'm looking at the elite pool store, you know, this uh, shiny, you know, like the Fedor jump shot and the Shane break and the, you know, I, and I, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to be able to afford that. So let's go to the thrift pool store where I've got the secondhand store and maybe with what I have to put into it, maybe I can afford something that's at least better than what I have. And then you look through the thrift store and then it's like, man, I can't really afford everything I want even here. And then it gets to the point where it's like, well, what can I afford? And then you look at what's left. And, and, and for Josh, what I would say is, it's not that he couldn't get better or have some successes, but he was in a spot where he, it wasn't interesting to him. What was interesting to Josh was training hard and putting together a game that could have a certain level of success um, that that was meaningful to him and when he saw what he would be able to afford with his resources it would just be like it was like not it just wasn't what he wanted it's like because it was he just wasn't able to put in the time and energy because he has you know three children and a wife and a fan and a, and a business and it's like in the end with what he had to put in it was like he, he'd get hitting the balls good and put in a lot of work and get hitting them pretty good. And then he had a tournament and he'd see that, man, I need to be playing 20% better. And he'd have some idea of how he was going to get there. And then he'd go home and wouldn't have, wouldn't he'd see the road that led there too, in terms of the tournaments he'd have to play and the work he'd have to put in. And he could almost taste it and he wanted to put in the work, but then he'd go home and he couldn't. And then it would all wash away. And it was like, and, and he wouldn't be able to pursue that. And then he would go to the next tournament and play less, that he wanted to you know, perform at a level lower than he wanted to perform at again, and then go through that again and again, where he's constantly not satisfied with his performance and frustrated that he can't put in what he wants to, to play at a level that would actually be satisfying to him. And so he kind of got to the point where he's like, I just don't have the resources to put into the game to reach a level that would be satisfying to me. And I don't enjoy going to tournaments where I feel underprepared and playing at a level that I feel is underperforming and getting mediocre results and just feeling frustrated that like I'm a competitor and I don't want to go and not be able to defend myself because I'm competing against guys that are 
they're not just out playing me, they're out resourcing me. And so it's not even, it's like, if you know that these guys have skills developed that you don't, and then you play and play and play, and they keep beating you because they could do things you can't, it's like either you have to have a plan on how you're going to develop those skills and then see if you can overcome that. And if, and if you can't, and you're just going to show up and keep running the same skill set that's not competitive, how many times are you going to show up, run the same game and lose and be like, what, you know what I mean? So that's, I'm not sure if I said that perfectly. And so Josh, if you listen to this one, sorry if I didn't represent you fairly, but I think it just got to the point where he's like, the only way I'd be interested in playing is if I could put in enough into this game to where I could develop my skills to a level where I could defend myself in competition and, and achieve some of the goals that I think would actually be meaningful because he, he saw that the level he'd actually be able to get to with the skills that he, you know, with the time and, you know, stuff that he had to put in just wasn't me. It wasn't that interesting to him, you know, trying to, trying to see if he could grind up 10 more Fargo points or, you know, take one or two more scalps. It's like, that's, that's not what he wanted. He wanted to be able to play, you know, uh, a high, you know, a really a game that he could feel really proud of and, and excited about. So, and I just, I just don't know that he felt he could get there with what he had to put in. He's like, and he's like, I'm, and then it, what that would do then is it would lead him to be frustrated too. Where it was like sometimes he'd be frustrated. He was, you know, frustrated when he competes sometimes because he'd feel frustrated he didn't have more to put in. He would sometimes be frustrated when, when, you know, when family and business, anybody that has a job and a family knows that there's times when those things push, you know, other stuff on the way. So like maybe you have family first, business second, pool third, but all of a sudden something happens with your family where for the next month or two, everything else is out the window because you got to attend to first things first. And so then, so then pool gets shoved to the side and then you get frustrated. So, and I'm not saying he's not like a rage monkey where he's just sitting around frustrated all the time. It was just a, it was just a persistent theme, which is when he was playing pool, it would be frustrating at times because he wasn't able to put in what he wanted to. And then, and then that led him to kind of be resentful sometimes of his, you know, obligations in life. And I don't know, I, I, it's not one-sided. I mean, he's a smart, he's a thinking player and he's self-aware and he's played pool and he's managed through this. And he just got to the point where he's like, yeah, I've run it enough and I see where this leads and it's not good for me. And so in the end, he'd rather not play and put more into his family and his business and doing things that, you know, anyway, so that's, that's kind of where Josh is at. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you said, we, we all know each other, so I'm pretty uh, up to date on the story as well. Is but there any adjustment? I mean, you've talked to Josh, you've had dinner with him last night. Did I misrepresent Josh? No, I think that's pretty spot on. I mean, yeah, it's like, for pool, you know, like, like he is the type of guy that wants to, uh, yeah, if he's going to train it and, you know, he wants to compete as much as he can and, and see progress and that's understandable. Um, but for pool, it's like, I, I think it, I think the thing that he struggled with and, you know, I've probably struggled with this a little bit of the time too, but pool is like, when you get this like bug where you want to, get really good and then you you want to go test to see like what the results are about your training you start to realize that it's it's not quite as bad as this but it, it mm-hmm. it's in the same range as like the idea of training for four years to try to make the olympic gymnastics team it's like at some point like i mean you either have to be the most mentally tough person or you have to realize like well wait a minute like how many times am i going to do this and then just realize like i didn't make the team and then I go and like train for like another, I mean, obviously it's not the same as that, but, but pool is kind of like that where you can practice, you can play every day in your garage, if you have a table or whatever you want to do, but there's only so many times you can get out there to compete with like the world's best. 
right? Unless you're one of the guys who are the top 20 in the world who either have some sponsorship help or actually are just positive EV players who are able to make a living at it. And that's, that's just such a small, you know, small few that get to that level. But there's also a hundred or 200 players that are not positive EV, but that they're just, they don't have as many obligations. They don't have jobs and necessarily family that are dependent on them. And they just travel around full time and they're willing to basically couch surf or break even on life for a while. And just not just to, to spend five, 10 years to see how good they can get, you know, and that's so true. Yeah. There's a lot of, and I think that's most, I would actually say that's most players. Like if you looked at, if you looked at say, you know, um, if you looked at the players that are between 700 Fargo and 780 Fargo, and you just looked at all the players that attended tournaments, there's some of them are players like me and you that are like not full-time players, but we shot take periodically. Uh, and then there's other players that are like, just, you know, I would say that like, you know, uh, they just don't have most of those players that are playing full time are not supporting a family. And you know what I mean? They're just kind of, they're usually younger guys that are just taking their shot. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, they all are supporting the families of the winning players, you know, <laughs> but, uh, that's funny. but uh, it's just, they're not supporting their own family. So that, that's, 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 yeah. Funny. Okay. So, but, so then that's kind of just, so then, so what do you think about the whole resource, like the pool store? Like, what do you think about the pool store? Like, yeah. Don't you kind of feel like if you, like, for example, if you wanted to get better at pool, I would say that it would take, you know, obviously a lot of, a lot of, you know, a full-time pool schedule. It would take a full-time pool schedule for you to get better at pool. It would take, you know, I don't know, 10, 10 or more pro events a year, along with, you know, an equal number of either gambling matches or sparring matches with those kinds of guys. And I would think that like, and it might take that type of investment for, you know, one yeah. to five years. No, know? no, I think it's pretty spot. I mean, you're, you're very good to come up with like, you know, good analogies and stuff. I mean, you're a smart guy, but so this is a, not, it's a very like closely correlated uh, side tangent, but cause we were talking about this a little bit earlier today of how there was a time when I was still traveling playing pool. And I, I kind of mentioned the similar thing to you of like, if I wanted to keep playing and traveling or what I wanted to do. And, and you kind of already knew by let me ask you that that was like, that the answer had already been, been so, decided. So Jesse, we were at, we were, we were going to some tournament and Jesse had been playing full time for about three years. And he says to me, I don't know, man. He's like, I've been playing these guys. And it's like, he's like, I, I, I you know, I was, I'm playing good and stuff. And I'm like, I, I see how good I'm playing, but I also see what it's like and how good you have to play and what I would have to do. And I see what I would, I, you know, I see kind of what I would have to put in to get there. And I just, I just, and I, and if I could get there and it's like, it's just, I don't know if, I don't know if I, if I'm going to be able to, I don't know if I can do that or I don't know if I want to do that. And I'm trying to figure that out. And what I told Jesse, which sounds really cynical of me to tell a young, you know, world-class pool player. But I, I told him, I said, Jesse, if you have to ask yourself, then the answer is no, because the players you're going to be competing against don't have to ask themselves, you know, when Josh Filler and Federer Gorst and, you know, these guys, they are not asking themselves, I don't know, man, should I take a shot at this? Like they're, they're, they're all into the point where the thought of what they're doing with their lives is not even in question. Like it's, it's like, it's laughable. Like if you ask them, do you think you want to take a shot at getting there? They're like, well, what do you mean? Like, that's all, that's like the only thought on their mind. So anyway, when, when Jesse started it's, you know, showing me that he was exploring his future and trying to figure out if he wanted to keep going. Like, I think that 
once you start having those self conversations, like it's hard to get to the elite level of pool. Now that doesn't mean that, that for those listening, that if you're, you know, if you're trying to get to be, you know, a 600 or 700, like that, obviously the, the lower the Fargo rate goal, the more imperfections you can have in your physical and mental game and still achieve those goals. So, so I'm not saying that that would, you know, stop you from reaching different levels, but to reach the highest level in pool, I just don't think there's much room for a lot of doubt, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I would say if you, if you want some more of that motivation, you should check out MN pool. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so yeah, I would say, yeah. I, so anyways, I was like the conversation we had, it was pretty funny, but I remember there was a point in time, like it, it was after traveling with you uh, discussing that because the, the conversation wasn't that short either. We had talked about some other stuff that related to it. And I do remember being at a tournament. I can't remember which one it was, but I did wake up one day and who, who knows if I was even still in the tournament or if I was getting ready to fly out. But I just remember like getting out of the shower and, and thinking this through. And, and I was like, you know, like if I got to be as good as I wanted to be, like how would I want my career to look? And then of course at the time it was like, I'd want to be the guy like Shane and, and win all the tournaments or, you know, even if it was only for like three to four years. And then that's where I'd ask myself that question. I was like, if I put all my energy and time into this for the next, you know, handful of years, do I think in like two years, do I think I'll be splitting sets with him? And like, I just had to be completely honest. And I was like, yeah, that's just not going to happen. And that was like the moment for me, even though it wasn't when I officially quit, I knew that I didn't want to play anymore or I did, I still wanted to play, but not like, I just, I lost the, the, the drive to, to want to be really good. So from there, I mean, it just was like a slow decline into the next like year of kind of playing pool because that's what I still did. But why do you, it's interesting to me, what, what was it? Uh, now, most people wouldn't even question this because they'd be like, yeah, if anybody asked, like, could you get as good as Shane in two years? Anybody listening to this would be like, of course not, you know, including me. So, but, but you're playing, you're young you're you're you know you want to you know pro sized event or whatever at what age were you when you won like that pro tournament or whatever like that uh what wasn't it like a kind of a semi-pro tournament what was it that you won down in florida when you were like oh yeah no that was i don't i don't know like what you even consider that it's hard to really yeah but, it was an open yeah, regional like or something. Or yeah. Something so you're playing good my point is you're playing really good why why would you look at it and say you couldn't get as good as shane in two years because like if you look at tyler like now, maybe Tyler doesn't believe he could get as good as Shane in two years. Sure. But he believes that he could still become successful enough to have a career. But like, but he 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 might believe he can. I don't know. Yeah. But for you. So for me, I mean, it's it's a weird way to explain it because I don't I don't want this to come off as like I'm when I when I name drop on, on people, like I don't want it to like sound like I'm talking down on, on who they are or like as players, because I have a lot of respect for anybody that plays like a high level, of course. But yeah, like in that tournament that you, that you brought up, like I remember, you know, being like Larry Neville and John Moore again and those things. And uh, and like players in like that range to me always seemed very talented, but they still had leaks as far as like they, they might not always deliver their best game. Right. And I finally figured it out for myself that what Shane had went like deeper than the surface of, of being a, a player. And it was something that I couldn't replicate, which is, you know, I. I mean, maybe I'm out of place by saying this, but like I happen to know a little bit more about his, his past where, you know, like I think some things and especially, you know, like with his hearing, I mean, being bullied as a kid, right? Like that 
instills something in you that just can't be it cannot be created like other unless you go through like a tough scenario in my opinion so when you have that like extra ounce of drive like you want to prove the world wrong and and like you know to me that's just something that they just it's irreplaceable like you can't you can't get that without that kind of experience so yeah it's it's a uh, it's interesting because um you know well i i think about the movie uh that just came out Dune. I don't know. We have talked about Dune. That was uh, the first book that I read as a kid was Dune. That was like the first real book. Okay. And uh, all the other stuff that I'd read was like kids books. And that was like the first novel that I was exposed to. And it was massively transformative in my life. And then I went on this huge reading binge. And just anyway. So in Dune, and it's a great movie. I was really happy with the remake as the, the 1984 Dune was <laughs> absurdly bad. But anyway, I was blown away by the fact that I liked the movie because I loved the book so much. I didn't think I could possibly like the movie, but they actually did. It was actually profound to me to see this book that's been such so meaningful to me brought to life in such a larger than life screen I had to see in the theater. So go watch Dune and uh, should probably watch it in an AMC theater. <laughs> support the old amc oh. we're up to 40 dollars. okay anyway yeah, <laughs> sorry yeah. amc to the moon <laughs> to the to moon y'all okay anyway uh let's see so the point is is that in doing one of the big themes is that adversity creates um exceptionalism so like uh the whole idea is that the the fremen uh the you know are these uh desert people that grew up in really you know oppressive conditions and they ended up being like some of the most the the most savage warriors in the in the galaxy or whatever. Uh, the emperors, Sardaukar warriors. For those who've read the book, they they were cut their teeth at Seleucus Secunda, which is like, you know, this hell planet where they you know he deliberately had them live and grow up there because then they came out super tough. And it was like it was a really really uh, big part of his story was was that even when even at the end when they were like had the power to remake Arrakis, the desert planet, into something more comfortable to live in and you know even once they had the resources to like try to soften the world um it was a big strategic thing about how they wanted to make it soft in some ways but they were afraid of losing that and this is something that i think we all go through you know uh with with children too is we want it good for our children we don't want them to suffer needlessly and we want them to be you know enjoy life and 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 we want it to be not unpleasant, but we also don't want them to get soft, weak, and entitled. And I, anyway, so I, this is a very common theme. And I, and I think about like Moscone, who grew up in the Great Depression playing pool. And I remember one of the quotes from his, uh, his autobiography was that, you know, every time he played pool, his opponent always embodied the specter of defeat which threatened to reach out and snatch the dinner off his table or the bread from his table. Like he always had, the, like it was built into him where he played pool. He, he quit pool. I don't know if you know this. He was, he was a prodigy as a kid, you know, he ran all these balls, whatever. He quit pool. He didn't even like the game. But then during the great depression, he had to start gambling and playing because that was the only way that his family was able to eat. So he played a game he didn't even like, and he did it for the money and he had to win. And that was just how he played. And so all throughout his tournament career, he was driven to like an insanity where he didn't want to win. It was just like deep inside of him. Like I need, you know, it's like, I can't lose. And I think that you, yeah, you're right. So it's, I, I got a little carried away because I was plugging doing, but, uh, but I think that certain conditions when people grow up where it's like, it, there's a level of need that's just some people have. And then where I think that plays out is when it comes to input equal output, the people that need it, it's like everybody wants it. 
Some people are even willing to try for it, but like the cost to get to the highest level is so high mm-hmm. that, that at some point, the only people that, that are able to do it are the people that kind of have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I don't follow enough pro sports, but I would have to imagine that like, if you just handpicked out of the NBA, like two players that are like basically built the same and play the same position. Like if one of them had a pretty, you know, comfortable lifestyle growing up where they, you know, they grew up in like the upper middle class and they, they just got there based on like the highest paid training and whatever, and the best schools, like versus the the guy that maybe came from like more of like the, the hood type of life, like low privilege. Right. Like, I mean, yeah, that, yeah. that's where a lot of like basketball players come from. You know, they, they play that and then that's their dream to get out. I mean, that's, it's not, yeah, it's, I don't think it's, it's a wrong way to put it. It's just the truth, you know. Yeah, like, you were just talking about that with uh, tonight. You were talking about international play. I won't name the name, but anyway, international players. And sometimes, you know, there there's only room for one or two players in their country to like, you know, kind of get the the support to go travel around and play yeah. internationally, and that that's such a payoff from where they're at. Yeah. Yeah. So like for some people, it just becomes to a point where when they tell themselves and they truly believe that that's, that that's their only option to get out of their current situation or make better for themselves, their future family or their current family, whatever it is. Like when you, I mean, I mean, when that gets instilled like in you, then, I mean, that, that does carry over into whatever you're doing as much as. So is that, is that, do you think that's a big role as far as like, why has the U S fallen behind the Philippines and some of the European countries in terms of the the level of the talent do you think like the filipinos are just literally hungrier like literally hungrier and they, i, I yeah. do believe that yeah for a lot of the i do think that's that's uh what happens but then it's also like kind of contradictory because you have like the european players right which i don't know the the current status of every country in europe so don't uh don't quote me on it but like i like it's very clear to me that a lot of that has to do with just structure and training right mm-hmm. like why a lot of those guys get to the top yeah. And I mean, again, like with the Asian countries, I'm not really sure what the, the true thing is there. But from what I understand, it seems like there's many players that, that play very, very good. And, you know, we just get like the top few over there. I feel over. like I'm being listened to by AI. And there's probably some like Chinese bot like watching through our laptop right now. That's like, I, don't, I feel a little uncomfortable right oh, now. Okay. <laughs> I'm, just right, right. I'm, not, I'm just joking. Say I'm just... it again, just as you said it. No. <laughs> yeah, say uh, that again and repeat your name. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so I think real, I mean, yeah, the issue with American players right now is that like most people get in it for the reasons of like, I guess what's the, the, the saying, the fast way to make an easy living, right? Like that's like, that's what American players play, right? They play to, to try to make money. It's kind of like a little side hustle type of thing. And then the players who excel, they kind of, you know, try to navigate the system to, to profit, but there's really no s- structure. Like once you get out of the junior level, um, you don't really have like, I mean, the, the landscape of like the semi-pro to pro level in the past, even in the past like 10 years as I've seen it has been like a crazy change. I mean, it doesn't even, it doesn't even make sense. You know, like one year, you know, that if you go to, the both turning stones and the seminal events, then that's what's going to dictate who gets on the Moscone team. And then the next year, it's like the seminal events are gone and there's like three events and then there's a BCA event. I mean, it's just, there's no structure. There's no planning behind, I mean, for any player there, right? So it's not a shocker why why nobody can really put it together because unless you're the top five guys, you know, like, because you're just able to kind of make, make well, it in all the... I was going to say, I think the road now 
is that you want to become the number one snooker player and then play your first nine ball tournament. And then that's how you, that's the path. <laughs> Never mind. Okay. Never mind. Okay. Sorry yeah. about that. So, okay. So, so it's interesting because you're right. It's like, I kind of have this picture. It's almost like there's like a, it's almost like, yeah, you got this, you got this one school of like MMA jujitsu wrestling guys that are like, that are just like, there, there's it's like there's almost like there's three different things there's there's the necessity for like like true hardship like direct life hardship necessity then there's like a culture of that's established like what do we do in our culture and then the third thing is like the desire to just like want it. and i feel like so i feel like the philippines it's like the mma guys that are like the wrestlers where they're like trying to there's like hundreds and hundreds of guys in these gyms that are all fighting day after day after day and just just killing each other to try to make it out of their out of their gym and make it on the big scene and, and, and get their winning tickets. So you get like these people wrestling for their lives. In Europe, I feel like a lot of these places, they have like a culture that they've created of training, which is like they push each other because you know that if you like if you practiced on your own, you can only practice so hard and so long. And and I, I remember, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast, but I remember Tyler was telling me about Johan and tell him, you know, Johan, I had a quote. He said, give me, give me a 10, 10 year olds and I'll make one of a world champion because what they do, like I've looked at some of the drills that they do and some of the ways they practice. And if I saw that drill, I would either not even bother to try it. Cause I'm like, well, that's stupid. I'll never do that. Or if I tried it, I'd be like kind of tentative, like, well, I'll try it and see how tough it is and feel it out and maybe practice a little bit and maybe suck a little bit less at it than I did when I started. But yeah, who are we kidding? I'm not going to complete that drill. Whereas in some of these places, they're like, they lock a group of 10 year olds in the room where they're like, someone's going to complete this drill. Who's it going to be? Who's, which one of you is going to be the world champion? And then they just keep going at it and they push each other. And in a room full of people where they're just like, yeah, we're going to do this. All of a sudden they push the levels that you might not on your own in a culture. And I feel like, and I feel like the U S players are more like, like you said, we're comfortable. So we're like the ones that are going to the MMA gym. We're, we're going to the, the franchise MMA gym where we're going to go to jujitsu classes because we think it's cool to like, it'd be kind of cool to do some grappling and learn some moves. And it's like, it's hard to go to, it's hard to be the guy that like drives his, you know, crossover SUV, goes to Starbucks in the morning, swings by the MMA gym, and then tries to do some jujitsu from six to eight. And be like, because you like the idea of MMA and it's, and then go compete against people that are either like fighting for survival or the people that have a culture that's established of training harder than we could really think that people actually train. That's something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's not by any means saying that I have even a decent idea of a solution for, for how this to be fixed. Because, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. But like, to me, the, the structure does have a lot to do with just why like I don't want to be the guy that says never either, but if it doesn't have like drastic change, then American pool will just always be levels behind from here because the other, other areas of the world have just done it either. It's either that they've just done it so much better or they just have like such a high volume of people that are all trying to be good that, you know, I, the, the amount that come to the top and right. be those world-class players just overcome the the twenty two Americans for the five year period that are trying, and two of them play pretty good, you know. I yeah, mean, not, no, no, not you're, to disrespect, but no, like, you're, you're right on. And so, so and, then, and then it's and then it self perpetuates because then in the Philippines, if you've got fifty guys that all play like like sky plays or something, 
or, or maybe that's too high of a bar. I don't mean to disrespect Sky, but you know what I mean? If you have 50 guys that are all like world-class players, <laughs> thanks, Jesse. Uh, good. So anyway, so it's, the point is, is that then, then of course, then the more success they have and then the more good players they have, then of course, the higher the bar gets raised on. Uh, and, and what I was going to say though, is I don't even know if we want to fix it because if the cost of quote unquote fixing us pool was creating conditions where hundreds and hundreds of kids felt that their life was so miserable that the only possible happiness or escape that they could ever achieve was to literally do something that's like involves sacrificing everything else in their life and, 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 and just going all in on pool. And like, if that's, if, if you had to create a desert planet, if you will, with sandworms, and and sandstorms that go up to like you know 800 kilometers per hour or whatever it is it's like you know it eats through metal jesse is what i'm trying to say do you want your kids growing up in sandstorms no no of course but i like i guess what i was going to add to that is so i i've never been over to europe or never played the euro tour events but like that's a structured thing right and they it's not that americans can't go over there and play because clearly they do but it's essentially small enough and out of reach enough where Americans like really aren't there, you know, like they're not really, it's like you're not invited without being not invited because nobody in their right mind is going to go over there, pay the ridiculous flight to have a chance to beat like 24 potential Moscone players (laughs) to maybe peel out of there with like a $3,000 profit. Like there's, it just doesn't even make sense. You know, like there's, there's no reason for anybody to go over there. But then like when, like, it seems like what America does is they have, some consistent ones like the turning stone events, which I think those are great tournaments. And then there's maybe a few other that pop up like that, but you get like a year or two where there's three or four very large tournaments that's big enough to attract the best players in the world. And then it's like, it comes over. And now that any of the American players who maybe had the idea that they might want to put, start putting the work in instantly just get shut down. Like, Oh, you, you wanted to try this, but actually th- these are the 30 guys that you'll never beat, you know? So it is what it is. That's just how the, how the that's what the market provides. But if for say like the American players had, let's just say it's 15 turning stones a year that were not just all in New York and that were like easily attainable for players in every area of the country. Then what do you think happens after five straight years of that, where, you know, the top, like, the, the non-residents of us cannot just can't enter like what do you think happens with american pool from there personally i think that we now see another 10 to 15 players who are probably i mean like somebody we were just talking about today like the danny olsons right there's other maybe not so many guys that play his speed even but like there are other guys that are getting closer to that that if they had that consistent level like we're gonna get more of the top 700 players right yeah yeah but, no I could but see nobody that. can really it's not even sustainable for somebody to even like be dedicated long enough because if they go on a run where they're where they go play for two three months on the road and they, they hit a level of tournaments well then it's just like it dries out for a while then they're they're back to playing like on valleys giving up two games to seven like <laughs> rob their local or regional players and there's there's such a lack of consistency that like who could navigate that there's no so this is this is good because we've been going for a while and and uh, what I want to do is uh, you can kind of continue this thought because what I wanted to, I talked a little bit about Josh and I wanted to ask you why you know where are you at currently are you playing are you not playing and why because basically all the reasons that all the lands we've been describing the landscape of pool uh, when you're in that kind of you know nationally competitive but not necessarily internationally competitive 
uh, or you know what I mean with that kind of level. I don't know how you want to put it, but where we are that kind of that the range that me and you and Josh kind of find ourselves in. We've been talking about the landscape of being a you know a good U.S. player. So now I wanted to. We've talked about how Josh processed it, how he was able to manage it, and then why he ultimately decided he doesn't want to manage it right now. Where are you at with pool? Are you quit? Are you full time? Are you in between? Well, I'm definitely not full time, and I definitely never will be full time. I mean. Even if the, even if it offered where I could get at like a 60 to 80K a year guaranteed salary to travel around and play pool, it's just not going to happen for me. Not a lifestyle I'm interested in. Um, I've definitely very close to the line of quit. Uh, I don't really, you know, I don't really desire or have too many pool goals as of now. I mean, but, you know, like I'll hit some balls with you, as you know, and people at home don't, or you know, listening don't know that, but. Yeah, like Demi and I might get together and hit some balls every few months or something. But right now, it's just it's very low on my priorities list. But at the same time, I mean, who knows? You know, like I know that you're going to Derby this year. It's possible I make it a attendance and just fire at that for a handful of days. And then I might not pick up my cues for six months. Like it's just it's not really a, a priority for me. But yeah, for me, I mean, a lot of the reason why I don't play even part-time is just because the inconsistency of like what's going on, you know, it, it's like, so, so the questions, okay. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You, you're no, no, making yeah. a point about inconsistency. Yeah. Like for me, it's just like, I want to have some sort of way to plan. I mean, if I knew that I could, you know, go to, a, I mean, yes, I am. I'm well aware that I can still sign up for tournaments like turning stone and that that's cool. But for me, you know, I do want to look at the financial reason too. And, um, you know, the idea of spending that money to go out to play a tournament that most likely at best I'll like, you know, break even if, or be within a few hundred dollars, that just doesn't mean enough to me to want to go play. Even if I could go and, you know, beat a couple of top players. So this is, this is a really a good point. So what, when it comes to pool, there's, there's different reasons to play. One is, you know, financial gain. One is social gain. And one is, some kind of, you know, intrinsic, you know, joy that you get out of, you know, breaking through and, and playing different levels. What I think people, what I, if, and I'm trying not to put words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong. I think that in the beginning, there's like some, so, you know, like as a teenager, I know that I had some like social incentives to like, I wanted to be the player. And then, and then when I started winning money, when you're a teenager and you win money, it's like, Oh, I'm winning. It's like, like you said, you know, you win a couple thousand bucks playing pool. You're compared to the, you know, minimum wage job you're working. It's like, well, this seems pretty interesting. And look at up here. And, and when you're a teenager, that's better at this game than anybody else that you know, and everybody's like applauding and watching your matches and paying you money. It's like, this is kind of cool. But then what happens from there is instead of, so you're being socially rewarded, you're being financially rewarded. And, and you're, and you're playing better and better because you're playing and, and you're, you're seeing, you know, so you're getting intrinsically rewarded by improving and improving. What happens is you get to a level where it's really, 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 really hard to get better. You're at the level where you're not making any money. There's no financial payoff because locally everything's handicapped and no pros and blah, blah, blah. I, it was funny. We were having dinner and I was talking to Jesse, we should have a podcast on the pros and cons of handicapped tournaments. And Jesse told me, yeah, but there's no pros. Ah, that's pretty good. Anyway, so the point is, is that you can't really make money locally as a, as a good player because they don't let you. 
And so then, and you can't make money nationally and you can't make money internationally because you're not good enough. So then it's like, there's no financial incentive. And then there's no social incentive because I don't think anything's going to change in your life, whether, you know, it's like, you're not going to, you're not going to like, you know, it's not going to do anything socially. So then it's all about intrinsic value. So then the question that I know everybody wants to know the answer to, which is, but don't you just want to see if you can do it or how much good, better you can get? Because you've come so far because everybody would like, it's like, man, if I could play that good, I would just want to see what I could do. Like, that's the question everybody wants to know. So why don't you answer that one? I know that everyone wants to know. That sure, one. sure. So I'll avoid throwing your laptop against the wall. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's obviously a question that I've been asked many, many times by people who maybe don't fully understand how pool works and or or they <laughs> They think they do, but they just haven't been in that. They haven't. You know, they just haven't experienced. Yeah, that, that's totally fair. So it's a reasonable question. Um, again, it's like when you experience going out and and playing, and and you kind of achieve the sort of goals you never really knew you had. Then at some point, you just lose your drive. Like because for me, I mean, I'm kind of a planner. I like to analyze like what I'm doing and and, and see if it's really going to be good for me long term and I mean I've got a little bit wiser of that over the years I guess but um I just don't see any avenue or any like series of results that could happen with me going out to play pool that would make my life happier even fi- or financially better or in any way better by doing that so that that's what where I just kind of landed on I've made peace with the idea that pool for me is just something that I'm exceptionally good at without really putting much more time into it at this point. So it's more so just understanding that, you know, the market is the market. What, like, what is the landscape right now? And how do I want to navigate that? That's best fit for me, whatever the reason is. So in, in a way, it's very similar to what, you know, Josh is saying in the sense that it's almost like you can look at like saying, hey, it would be cool to get my Fargo to 780, 790. It would be cool to win a turning stone and be, you know, be a Filipino champ in the finals. It would be cool to be on the Moscow Indy Cup. Like those things would be cool. It'd be cool to, to do some of these things, but I don't need to. And when I look at the road of what it would take to get there, I I don't want it. I don't need it enough to, to make the sacrifice and put in, you know, the three, four, five years of playing full time and, and chasing that. It doesn't, it's just, it would be nice. It would be fun. It would be cool, but I don't, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't have to have it and I'm not willing to, to, to contort my life for five years to try to get it. Yeah, exactly. Cause I mean, for me, the only thing that would be like exciting for me at this point in, in that level of pool would be to experience being on the, on the Moscone team just once. Like, of course, everybody wants that. I mean, I feel like I, I play a level of game with, you know, in the American players where if I was to apply myself and, and focus on, traveling for a year, year and a half, even if it was, you know, part-time, but if I was playing like full-time at home, kind of when I wasn't running a business, then, I mean, I might be in contention to, to have a shot there, but like, aside from that, like even the idea of winning a, a, a good size pro tournament and, you know, getting a 30 or $40,000 score, like that just doesn't really like speak to me. I just don't see that that would improve my life in any way. I mean, I've beat enough of the top players where I, I understand where my game you know, sits at the end of the day. I'm not going to get this false sense of delusion that all of a sudden I can be the the next best player. And, and I don't really need, uh, 
you know, I don't like, like you said, like when you kind of come up in that younger age and you're in your teenager, you know, everybody's like putting you up on this pedestal, like the next big thing. Like I've experienced being in the spotlight enough to know that that's not like a fulfilling thing. I mean, some people might have that, but just not for me. Like I, it's just not who I am. So. Yeah. And I, and I, and I kind of come back to thinking about it. Like I, 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 for anybody that asked that question I about, you know, why wouldn't you want to do it? It's like, I think that I've said this before and it's just something I'm still, I'm repeating because it's new enough to me, this idea that I'm still finding, I'm still playing with this idea, but I, I've really come to the idea, Jesse, that exceptional achievement is applauded, is like, is like applause worthy to a point. And then it gets to a certain spot where it's like, it's like a quantum physics where all the rules change at a certain point. Like, I think that people being their best selves and people being disciplined and working hard and breaking through physical and mental barriers through proficiency and determination and, 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 and hard work and, and putting together, you know, an exceptional skill set. I think that's all admirable stuff until it gets to the point where it's completely dysfunctional in every other part of your life. And the only way to get any further is to have like some weird neurosis where it's like, you have to win at all costs because like, I always think about like Bruce Lee and some, I don't know if it's, Fact or fiction? Because I'm not a big Bruce Lee buff, but like, there's that there was there was a a story. And I don't, again, I don't know if it's just for the movie or whatever, but like how he thought like he was going to have to face some demon to fight for his son's life or something, and he was, this demon was stalking him his whole life with his dreams, and he was training his whole life because he thought he was going to have to fight to you know defeat this this you know uh, some match some some face off that was going to be coming at some point. He was training all his life to prepare for this one moment. I that might have just been in the movie, but anyway, the point is is that um, without like at that point, I don't even think it's like the the gym. I, I think I mentioned this before, like the gymnasts that train, like you know these eight year old girls and nine year old girls that are training hours and hours and hours and can't eat, you can't you know like because they're going to be in the Olympics or something. It's like you look at that, it's like it's not even that's it's like at some point it's hard to even applaud because it's like that's not even you know what i mean and so for me i i look at like exceptional ability like i said it's not an ability contest it's a re it's a it's a it's a pool store and and so when you see people go into a pool store and 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 take a reasonable budget and do something exceptional with it i think that's applause worthy but when you see people spend money that they could be spending on a normal life and on a and on a fulfilled life and you know different things um, I'm not saying that if somebody wants to spend all their, all their resource on pool and be, you know, the lead at the game, I'm not going to say they shouldn't, but I would actually look at that and say, man, in a dream world, I wish that nobody would go through that kind of childhood where they felt like that was a good investment. You know what I mean? So it's hard for me to even like applaud. Like, I don't even know if I want to see people get a lead because it's just, you know, I'm confused about it all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I have like a, a, slightly or if you're talking about specifically with pool if you wish that they would have that that thought process then i would uh i mean my slight disagreement there would be you know like i've also had a lot of good things come from pool i mean i obviously met josh through pool which then led to you know me getting into a business which has made my life very comfortable at this point so it would be hard for me to like say that getting like super hulked out at a game and and wanting to chase that dream can't lead to good things I think it's just, it's definitely a dangerous uh, mindset if the person with that mindset is like truly, truly delusional and being backed up by tons of people around them telling them that they're like, that their potential is far greater than it maybe ever really is. 
And I know that's uh, like that's that's a fine line too, but that's I I've because I I I know that I've seen that with some players, like not from around here, but like that I know that are like kind of traveling professionals, and I see how how their like fan base you know reacts to them, and I and I understand why maybe they. You know, they have that so, sort of false so sense it's, of... it's almost like in the boxing ring where the guy's just getting punched and punched and punched. And he's like getting up and it's like the third round. And he's getting knocked over the fourth round. He's getting punched. And, and normally like the guy in his corner is like, stay down, stay down. But now instead everybody's in the corner is like, you got him, man. You got him. Get back up. I think it's your time. Yeah. <laughs> As there's not a drop of blood. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of something like that. I mean, it's it's good to like you know, have a good support system, obviously for chasing your dreams and whatever, but you also have to have like the right amount of people in your life that are going to, you know, kind of set you straight too. So if they're, if you have good friends, I mean, that's, that's probably what that's for, but yeah, but yeah, I, I'll let you kind of, yeah. So then I'll just, I'll, I'll conclude with me. Cause I, I won't, I, you guys have heard me enough to know. I don't know why I still play other than I don't play for social payoffs. I don't play for financial payoffs. I just love the game. I have a certain amount of time and energy to put in and I just enjoy spending it on pool. I just enjoy, I just enjoy it. And so I don't, I don't look to get, I don't need to get anything out of it other than just, you know, just playing the game and, and trying my best and it's still fun to me. And so that's, that's as deep as it gets. It's like, there's no underlying, you know, profound thing beyond just, God damn it. This game has been in my life, my whole life. And uh, every time I turn on the radio and go practice, I, I feel like I'm in my happy place. And uh, I just, and I like going out and playing good players and I'm honored that I could go out and play among some of the best players in the world and, and, uh, and, and share the table with them and, and fight and, and have some ups and downs. And, you know, it's just, I enjoy it. So nothing really to talk about there. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Can I add one more thing to that? Or yeah, yeah. Okay. I was just going to say, uh, yeah, like, so to not sound super negative about like me being, uh, not willing to go and, and play or whatever, like it's more so just now where I'm not willing to sacrifice the, the things that I don't like, which are like the travel, the added expense to do that. Like, I still like the idea of challenging myself as you know, like where we go to, to play in some of these tournaments and, and honestly, if, if any top player in the world is, is going to come through our area and they, they want to play, like, I'm, I'm happy to play anybody that's going to come through. I mean, for a reasonably affordable amount and because that fits well into my life. But for me to, like, take away from other areas of my life, that's just that's kind of what the main thing is. It's not like I have a negative view on, you know, yeah, you're not competing and being your best you know version of yourself as a player you can be. It's just that when it starts to impede on the other areas of your life, eventually you have to to really make a call at what's a healthy balance for you. So, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So I will tell you, uh, we're going to wrap up pretty quick. I've got one, not quite a road story, but I've got one story I wanted to share before we wrap, but, but I will say that we've covered a lot tonight uh, in a, you know, we went over a lot of stuff. You know, we talked about, we talked about the state of pool, why, you know, what it's like and why some people want to keep playing and why some people don't and some of the challenges uh, we talked about U.S. versus other countries and what it takes to be elite. Uh, we've, you know, in terms of mindsets, we've talked about um, how to break through, you know, getting to the next level. So you guys have been with me the whole time. I don't need to recap it all. I'm just, I'm thinking about the all we covered because some of it, in some ways, you know, you guys might have questions or comments and, and maybe we dig in deeper to some of these things that you want to go down further with. But um, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied. I'm pretty satisfied that you guys have gotten to know a little bit about Jesse Engel and uh, you can 
see him, look him up on uh, YouTube and uh, all that. And then um, I think that's good. So, yeah, so everybody, thanks for tuning in and hit me with uh, comments, questions, and suggestions for future topics because uh, I've got a few. But, uh, yeah, I appreciate you coming on. And, you know, Jesse is a, a good friend of mine, fortunately. So, you know, there's a possibility that um, we can we can do more in the future, keep these podcasts going. And then, uh, all right, so this story, I know I've told people this story. I don't think I've told it on the podcast. And if I have, I'm sorry, but I can't remember. But I, I don't think I have. Jesse and I got together at the local pool hall. I don't remember how many years ago. It's probably what, 10 years ago? Not quite. Eight, seven, to ten, seven, eight, sure. seven to 10 years ago. And, you know, Jesse, he, you know, he's a better player, man. And, and he, you know, it's like every time I played him, it's like, it's like competitive, but, but I'm really up against it. It's really hard. So anyway, we get together and he's, I, I think we were playing bank pool like race, you know, we're just playing like races to three for 20 bucks playing bank pool. And, you know, I, banking is not the strongest part of my game. And Jesse is like, he's not, the, I'm not he's not like, uh, I'm trying to think of the best, bait. he's not Billy Thorpe, but the, you know, Jesse, uh, he banks well, he, he plays the game really well, man. So anyway, we're playing banks and it's like, he's not beating me like three, nothing, three, nothing, three, nothing, five, zero, five, zero. But like, that's that would actually be easier to stomach in some way because you'd be like, well, the guy just done, but it's like he just gets it done a lot where it's like he'll be beating me, you know, three to two at a set counter, he'll, you know, the game counter, he'll be beating me five to three of the bank counter. It just seems like it's just one of those situations where it's like everything I do is almost good enough, but not, you know, and it's like it's just kind of fatiguing. So anyway, he beats me a couple sets of banks. And so now I'm down 40 bucks and I'm like, well, let's play some 10 ball. Right. So we're like, well, we'll play a race to seven for 20. And so I, I, uh, I had a pretty good lead in this set and I feel like I was like, play, I was playing really well and I felt like I was winning the set. And then like, I think I got a bad roll or two and some Jesse had a good roll or two and something kind of like won a game. Like, Oh, look, I won that game. And I'm like, I won this game. And I'm not saying I was up like six zero, but I would guess that I was up like five to two or something. And things were kind of, and all of a sudden some things started going sideways and some things went good for Jesse. And he runs a few tables. And next thing you know, he comes back and like, haha, once again, beats me at the finish line. And, and, and so it was, it was just like, and it was a weak moment. I had a weak moment because I'm not usually the kind of person to like, Usually, like, in fact, this is one of the only times I can ever remember being like a little frustrated after a loss. Like, like, really, I was like, pretty frustrated because, you know, Jesse's just been pouted, pouted on me and pouted on me. And then I thought I had this one and he comes in, ah, he comes back and pounds on me again. And so I made some kind of comment and I forget what I said, but like Jesse and I are friends and everything. But like, I, I think I said something like like lucky for you, I have to work tomorrow. And so I have to, you know, I don't have time to play anymore. Like, it is like the stupidest thing. Like I'm embarrassed that I even said it, but I was like kind of bitter. And I was just like, well, lucky for you, I have to work or, you know, I, I, you know, run it back. And, and then, and, and, and so I shouldn't have said it. I was out of line and Jesse responded. He looked at me and said, well, if you want, we just play one more set for all of it. Cause he kind of responded in like, you know, like I was kind of like, I said something a little snide and Jesse's like, well, if you want to play one more, we can just bet it all. And all of a sudden, shit got real, you know, like up until this moment, it was two friends just playing some friendly sets. And all of a sudden, now all of a sudden I look around, there's like four or five guys on the rail that are watching us play. Cause when Jesse and I play at the pool hall, sometimes people sit on and watch. So all of a sudden it went from being two guys just sparring around to like 
now we're playing a set for 60, double or nothing, and there's people watching, and everything got real quiet, and everyone's like, ooh. Right? Is that, okay, before yeah. I go on, is that what you, yeah, you correct I mean, it anything? Yeah, obviously it's not like high stakes or anything, but just the way that it played out, <laughs> like with, yeah, like we knew, like it's not like it's just going to, like we were angry, but it's just, yeah, just the way the, the, the intensity came level. Out, the intensity, yeah, <laughs> and it was just the right amount of people came over to watch where all of a sudden it was like, okay, well, we both kind of made our comment. <laughs> now we both want to win the, the set because we don't want to look like an idiot. Yeah. So it got like it was it was probably just as awkward for us to be playing as it was for like the tension of the people watching. <laughs> but it was yeah, it was a it, it's just hard funny. to explain the scenario. It's, it's like it's like uh you know and, and Jesse, you know, one time he told me we were at a tournament one time and he said that you know, sometimes we'll be like play games and we'll play card games with each other, we'll play different games, and he's like I think Josh actually said this. Josh said it's like it's like me and Jesse, he always said it's kind of like wolf wolf pups that are nipping at each other to like learn how to fight it's like we're always just kind of like we're not like nipping at each other and any like there's there's no malice or anything but we're always like we're always kind of like sparring around and so anyway yeah things get real and so this set doesn't really matter how it plays out other than the fact that it goes hill hill of course the set goes hill hill and and somehow i get to the table and i i don't remember the whole layout but i remember this much of we're playing 10 ball and I remember this much, which is that the seven, eight, nine was laying tough, like not like unrunnable, but like, you know, there's certain layouts where even on the hill, hill, the balls are sitting pretty good where it's like, ah, it's pretty routine. You didn't have to, as long as you had to keep calm and, and don't mess up, you're going to run the balls out. This was one of those layouts where you had to like, even if you're, it's like, you don't have to run out, like they're laying tough. And I remember getting up there and I'm like, of course, you know, this is my opportunity. It's a pretty tough one, but I was. I was really, really determined to win this game of pool. Like I was really determined to win this game of pool. And I got up there and I'm grinding the balls in. And this is a super tough table, right? Toughest table. Yeah. Have you ever played on a tougher table? Maybe. It's no, it's pretty tough, man. Like that's, that's <laughs> it's probably the, one of the hardest diamonds. I mean, playable run rotation, playable diamonds you could play. On. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it's a tough rack and I'm panting and I'm gasping and I have like this hard seven, eight, nine. And I'm telling you, I made the seven and I made the eight. And now I got to put the nine down. And the 10 ball is sitting like a foot and a half out from the side pocket where you just shoot in the side. And I get down, I'm looking at the nine. If I make this nine, the 10 ball is like a foot and a half out from the side. I just, you know, it's a gimme shot in the 10. I get down and I drill the nine and I draw out of the rail. I bounce off and I've got a pretty, you know, like a gimme shot in the 10. And I just was so pumped up. And I made that shot and I like, ha, ha, ha. I got this set. Yeah. Sorry. I, I'm not supposed to swear, but this is just all coming back to me. And I, and I stopped. And then I, and then I realized Jesse hadn't conceded the 10 ball and, and, and just kind of in a, like, again, kind of carry on this. I'm really not proud of this moment, but I, I was just feeling like that little victory surge and that little bit, like kind of some, you know, uh, what do you call it when you're vindicated? And I kind of was just like a little bit, like a little bit, like, you know, gotcha. And I looked over at Jesse and I'm like, are you going to make me shoot this? <laughs> and Jesse's like, yeah. And so, so I was like, I was kind of like, kind of like doing my like proud stare, like looking around, like I just proven something. <laughs> so I got down and shot the 10 ball. And all of a sudden I got down and I was like totally unprepared to shoot this 10 ball. <laughs> and I shot it into the point of the side. And then it, it like, it hit the other point of the side and then it like hung and then it fell in. And everybody on the rail was just—it was like this collective gasp from the rail. Where everybody was like, <gasps> and, and, uh, and I sat, I stared at this thing, and it hung, and then it toppled. And I took a deep sigh of relief, and I just stared at it, 
and it was super quiet. And I looked over at everybody and I looked over at Jesse and I just said, you know, Jesse, I think that if that 10 ball hadn't have fallen in, that might have ended our friendship. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty funny, man. That was the most dramatic break-even session I've ever had in my entire life. Yeah. yeah that, was <laughs> 20, that was the most dramatic $20 break-even I've ever had. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if it would have been, like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, either way, but I don't know if it would have been worth $120 just to, like, go through that. Oh, uh, you know, I know. Now you're going to tell me you dumped me. No, I, no. It was, it was just a funny, uh, it was just a funny ending to the story, <laughs> man. Like, uh, it, yeah, it was like it was scripted, man, for sure. But it's funny, it was, man. But no, that's you know what though? It's the only time I can remember that happening. Every other time we've played or I've played, I, I it's it's just funny how pool happens, man. It's a funny game. So, but uh, that was the younger me. I've I've grown up since then. <laughs> so, well, listen, Jesse, thanks. Um, you good? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on. And if uh, I mean, I guess if you want to bring me on for something different down the road, I'm probably happy to do that as long as the. All right, so you guys, too annoyed, but. in the comments, thumbs up or thumbs down. Is it okay if I invite Jesse on again? Because uh, Josh is no more. So my choices are either to uh, not do the podcast or, or I mean, Josh has got big shoes to fill. But, uh, you know, we're trying to provide the best queued up network content we can. So give us uh, comments and uh, we'll catch you next episode. Take care.